Excellent. Okay. Woohoo! <clears throat> All right. Anyway, so tonight we are going to talk about, we're going to look at Boromir's reaction and even more interestingly, Aragorn's reaction to Boromir's reaction. Um, seeing the two of them interacting uh, is uh, fascinating. We looked at Elrond's introduction, of course, of Aragorn last time uh, when Elrond sort of spills the beans and the rather unusual way in which uh, he spills the beans. Uh, so, uh, and that's what uh, the question I wanted to go back to. Uh, Eliza asks a really interesting question. Actually, before I do that, let's uh, uh, just go back to the text we were discussing that her question is about. Um, Elrond's introduction, right? When Aragorn stands up and puts the broken sword on the table and says, here is the sword that was broken. And Elrond then introduces, and Boromir says, and who are you? And what have you to do with Minas Tirith? And Elrond says, he is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and he is descended through many fathers from Isildur Elendil, son of Minas Ithil. He is the chief of the Dúnedain in the north, and few are now left of that folk. Okay, so here's Eliza's comments. She says, is it possible that some of the details Elrond includes are intended to frame Aragorn's coming in the most hopeful and non-threatening way possible, so as to predispose Boromir to welcome the prospect of his coming to Gondor? And might he even be thinking about how to ease Boromir into the idea of a smooth transfer of power to Aragorn as king? Two phrases in Elrond's speech stand out to me. First, of Minas Ithil. To me, it's striking that Elrond is using the ancient name for a place that is now known as a source of horror, Minas Morgul. This calls to mind Gondor's former glory, surely a winning strategy with Boromir, but might it also hint at a possible brighter future? After all, the poem has spoken of councils stronger than Morgul spells. That's not a direct reference to Minas Morgul, but I can't help but wonder if the mention of Minas Ithil gestures towards a juxtaposition of the two. Might Elrond be subtly suggesting that Aragorn's return could lead to the restoration of Minas Ithil in place of Minas Morgul? That's a really great point. We, I was, you know, we were talking last time about sort of the historical significance of Minas Ithil, and especially the way that, <clears throat> of course, Minas Ithil was the, the city of, of Isildur, who is Aragorn's ancestor, and how... Um, uh, that, you know, it's like the and the companion city, of course, of Minas Tirith back in the old days when it was Minas Anor. So um, it, we talked about that stuff. But I think that this is a really good angle, especially given what Boromir has just been saying about, you know, the, uh, you know, the black shadow, you know, the force that they have, you know, the power that they have not encountered before on the battlefield and all that kind of thing. Um, so... Uh, and as you say, Eliza, uh, the the reference to it also is strong, uh, stronger than Morgul spells. I mean, the reference to the power on the battlefield, right? Which are clearly Morgul spells, uh, also associated, as it turns out, with Minas Morgul. But as you say, that's not a it's not used as a proper noun in that sense uh, in the in the in the verse in the prophecy. Um, but again, clearly connected with Minas Morgul, as it's not called that for nothing, right? Um, so yes, the idea that of sort of associating him, not only recalling a time before Minas Morgul was what it is, but I, I like that idea of sort of glancing past to invite him to think about a, not only the glory of Gondor that was, but the restoration of that glory and to associate Aragorn with that restoration. I think that that's a, um, I think it's a lovely idea. Um, I really... Uh, I really like that. Um, and uh, the... Okay, and then her second point. Few are now left of that folk. 
When I got to this line during the episode, my first thought was that it made the Northern Dunedain sound non-threatening as a military power. They might be led by a guy with an awesome sword, but he's not exactly leading countless hordes. This seems significant not only with regard to the war with Sauron, and of course we had talked about that last time, about how uh, you know one of the subtexts there could possibly be, don't think this is a military ally we're talking about here, right? The sword that was broken does not mean, you know, the armies of the, of the people of the north, right, who are going to come riding to Gondor's aid. Anyway, so she says this seems significant not only with regard to the war with Sauron, but also with regard to Aragorn's intentions towards Gondor. Boromir has been at war his whole life. I can't help but think... Oh, hang on a second here. Sorry. Having, uh, having issues here. My other, my, my phone here, my other broadcasting tool. All right, sorry, one second. Darn it. <laughs> I don't know why this isn't working all of a sudden. I got a got a battery issue. Oh, I might lose the Twitter broadcast. I can't get it to Oh well. Sorry. Sorry. Apologize for that. Okay, sorry. So um I can't help but think that as soon as he catches on to the fact that Aragorn represents an alternative claimant to power, at least part of his mind will leap to the possibility of an armed conflict. Elrond's words then could be meant in part to preempt any thought of an invading force from the north. If there are few of Aragorn's people left, he can't be planning to pit them against the Gondorians. That, I think, is a really, really interesting point. Um, and uh, I would, Eliza, I would actually even potentially push it one step further, right? Uh, and I never really thought about it this way before, but it's kind of fun. Um, it's kind of fun to think of, uh, you know, the implication that, like, look, this is like the perfect match, right? I mean, here you've got a kingdom with no king. Here you've got a king with no kingdom, right? Oh, it's like the perfect match. Um so, I mean, that I think is, uh, I, I don't know, like, I think that's really fun. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, anyway, so um, I think that this is a great point. Again, it is non-threatening, right? He is the heir of Elendil, right? And we talked about the kind of the sort of indirect way, right? He does not say, um, he does not shove Aragorn's right to the throne of Gondor into... Um, uh, into uh, Boromir's face there uh, in his introduction, though he does make it clear. It's not hard to do the math, right, if you're Boromir and figure that out, but Elrond is fairly gentle about that. And Eliza, I like both of your interpretations there. I think that both of those, you know, uh, the implication, both of those two implications are things that um, that could really work uh, and, and work in favor of a sort of positive and less... Uh, uh, alarmist reaction by Boromir uh, to the introduction. It's very clear that the introduction is happening sort of deliberately. I mean, we've been talking about this, how um, one of the things that Elrond has seemed to be building up to, right, is the uh, uh, is the introduction of Aragorn. 
um, and the declaration of his lineage. It's one of the clearly one of the major goals of the meeting here today, but he's done it. Um, he's done it carefully. Um, yeah. Tora Marthen says, let Boromir think it was his own idea, right? Yeah. Like, let him figure it out. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Simon says, how many years has it been since there was a king in Gondor? Over a thousand, right? How quickly would people want to follow a claimant to the royal throne after that long of a time? Of course, exactly the question that we will later learn young Boromir used to ask his dad, right? Um, because it's, I agree, it's a, a really remarkable question, honestly. Um, if you think about, I mean, you think about any other... Um, you think about any other situation, right? Any other historical situation, imagine what would happen if a claimant to the throne comes and claims the throne a thousand years after their line ceased to be king, right? Um, it's, uh, it's interesting because, of course, especially when you remember back, as I was saying last time, to where Tolkien's mind was in the first draft of the Council of Elrond, right? In the Council of Elrond, this was about an act of reconciliation between the Dúnedain and the non-Dúnedain people of Gondor who had kicked the Dúnedain out uh, of Gondor back in the old days. Um, so again, it was, it, was, it was a reconciliation that was being anticipated in the return of the king, right? Um, instead, he transforms that story as the story develops. He finds that it has become a story of the long long-awaited king, you know, the long-lost heir. Talk about there's lost heirs and then there's long-lost heirs, right? The lost heir returning. Uh, and there's a there's a sort of a greater kind of... Um, there's a greater kind of destiny involved there, right? Um, but you think about what it suggests with the, the waiting, right? The waiting that they have done. I, I don't mean the waiting they've... Like, what they have actually done, the way in which they have preserved the line, preserved the, th- the throne has sat empty for a thousand years while the stewards have ruled as stewards uh, and without ever claiming to be king. Um, Gondor has become this extremely remarkable kingdom, which far from turning away from its ancient roots, from its ancient leadership, Right, has clung to them like nobody anyone has ever heard of. Right, um, so it's yes, the idea that uh, suddenly this guy out of the north is that king. I mean, even like at this point, surely there is a there is a sense in which to to at least you know like on the street in Gondor, right, where the king, the idea of a of a king in Gondor has become just a purely mythical concept, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. Mad Violinist says, Hello, I'm a descendant of good King Alfred. Come to restore England after the invasion of the Norman bastard. Yeah, I mean, that could fly, right? I mean, that's actually, Mad Violinist, exactly correct, Right, we're we're a thousand years away, almost a thousand years away from the Norman invasion. Right, so yes, a uh, 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 d- descendant of good King Alfred, you know, marches into uh, 
you know, Buckingham Palace and says the king has returned. Right. I mean, that's um, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, uh, in a, a similar sort of line, Matt says, well, it seems to be an alien concept. There is a once in future king vibe to this that tugs at our mythological memory. Um, yeah. I mean, this idea of like the lost king or the, you know, the restoration of the ancient kingship um, and thinking back to Eliza's point here about the, the glory of Gondor. Um, it is. Uh, those things are very closely tied together. Right. And although the common people might think that um, the, you know, the idea of the king is mostly a mythical idea, but the, the, the mythical power of it, what is tied to is going to exactly be the ancient glory of Gondor, by which they would mean the glory of the kings of Gondor. But of course, glimpsing beyond that to the legends of Numenor afar, right, on the other side of the glory of Gondor. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so that's. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's let's get back to. Um, Let's go back to the text here. I put up last week's slide again, not because we're going to talk about the whole thing again, but I wanted to make sure we got the segue in because it's a big deal, right? Bring out the ring, Frodo, said Gandalf solemnly. The time has come. Hold it up, and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. Uh, Gandalf's premise here. uh, So two things, right? The time has come. This is the moment when the halfling shall stand forth, right? Okay, hey, halfling, stand forth already, right? Um, and that seems, I, I, that is how I take Gandalf's words here when he says the time has come, right? Um, and that's why he links it explicitly. Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. The first part of his riddle, the sword that was broken, has already been explained, right? The sh- sword was just shown to him, and Elrond has just given him the key to the significance of the sword that was broken, right? So that's the front end of the poem. The back end of the poem, uh, for Isildur's bane shall waken and the halfling forth shall stand. Uh, Again, the sort of the middle part has already been hinted at in Elrond's explanation of how in the north the ring is called Isildur's bane, right? Um, And now Gandalf says it's time for the end, of the riddle, right? Once the halfling stands forth and holds up Isildur's bane, and we all see that Isildur's bane has indeed awoken and returned into sort of the the councils of the wise and the the sort of the theater of action here uh, in Middle Earth from its time of quiet retirement at the bottom of a river under the mountains and finally in the Shire. I can tell you which of those three places I would rather retire to. Um, uh, but anyway, um, so we have. Um, uh, we have all of those things, right? Um, and Gandalf speaks as if this makes it self-explanatory, right? Um, yeah. Okay. I, hey, hey, Matt. Okay, fine. All right. Matt says there's a word we missed, so uh, I, we can't have that. Uh, so Matt points out that uh, he wants to talk for a second about the verb. Uh, that what Aragorn does with the sword. He cast his sword upon the table that stood before Elrond. Um, and Matt's point is that the term isn't reverential. Like, he doesn't, like, lay the sword upon the table, right? He doesn't, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, 
he he, ca- he casts it right. Yeah, Mike. It's like he tossed it on the table. Uh, he cast his sword upon the table, and the blade was in two pieces. Here is the sword that was broken. He said, right. And it's it's funny, isn't it? Uh, how Peter Jackson kind of reverses this, right? How Boromir treats the sword cavalierly in the film, and film Aragorn is like, oh, oh, I shall you know, reverently place it back upon. And book Aragorn is like, boom, there it is, right? And cast it um, on the table. Yes, Tony, I agree. You can hear it clanging um, when it when it lands. Um, I, yeah, I, I that verb cast is really interesting. Um, it's dramatic, right? Um, uh, it's dramatic, um, the casting, that is, I mean, you know, he set the sword upon the table. Uh, cast is a more active verb, right? Um, so it certainly, <laughs> like the fourth thoughtless says, the sword is cast, right? Uh, yeah, what would that be? Uh, 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 gladius yacta est, something like that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, yes, um, yeah, Flem, for that's a good point. Is of course Narsa will be recast and become Anduril. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, Gladius Yactus est. Of course, yes. I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, 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 I, I didn't. I sorry. I I didn't make the adjective agree with the noun. Uh, um, <laughs> anyway, um, um. Yeah, and I know you don't cast a sword. You forge it. It's, it's just a pun, Angris. Just a pun. He's going to forge the sword. I know it's different. I know you you don't cast a sword. Uh, but uh, it is it is kind of a funny pun. Anyway, I don't know what to do with that. I'm not sure. Um, but here's one thing. Although I really like that scene in the Jackson film when, you know, with Aragorn's... Um, uh, uh, with Aragorn's reverential, you know, replacement of the uh, hilt of Narsil on the, you know, little statue platform. Um, I think that he, um, I think that this, for Aragorn, um, the sword, yes, it's a big deal. Like, yes, it's a relic of the past, but see... The difference between Book Aragorn... Okay, wow. All right, I was just about to start a sentence with the difference between Book Aragorn and Movie Aragorn is... Boy, are there a lot of ways to end that sentence. Uh, But um, one difference I think that we're seeing here... um, And I don't know for how many of you that moment in the film is kind of lurking in your imaginations when we're thinking about the significance of cast here and how it... Like, if it feels weird, right... Um, I think that's one of the reasons why it feels weird, because, again, that was a really moving scene. Uh, But among the differences between film uh, Aragorn and book Aragorn, uh, remember that the the very reverence that movie Aragorn shows for for the shards of Narsil, uh, it, it... it sort of it bespeaks the complicated relationship between movie Aragorn and his past. Right. Um, uh, That is, he is reverential of the past, but he also is distant from it. The very fact that the shards of Narsil are there in a, uh, you know, in a in a display stand. Right. Instead of he's not carrying them around. Right. Um, So he is 
the book Aragorn for the book Aragorn, it's still a, 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 a very important relic, right? But so is the ring he's wearing, right? This is his sword, right? I mean, this is a this is a, an instrument of daily use, a thing he's been carrying against this occasion, right? I think that Aragorn has known pretty much, you know, his whole adult life, he's known that this hour would come, that he would be the one, that in his lifetime, Narsa would be reforged, that in his lifetime, um, the great war against Sauron would occur, right? He has been preparing for this. Now, yes, I understand Musical that, you know, what primary function does a broken sword have in his daily use? My point is he carries it around. It's not, I'm not saying he uses it every day. Like, I doubt he pulls out the lower half, you know, of the shards of Narsil and uses it to cut his fruit or something like that. What I'm saying is uh, he, um, he carries this around. This is, it's not a display piece, right? It's not something that he has a reverential distance from. Right. This is part of his heritage that he wears like his ring. Right. Um, He owns in ways that, of course, movie Aragorn doesn't own it. Right. The whole thing is like movie Aragorn is like, oh, like I respect this, but it's not me. Right. No, this is him. Book Aragorn. This is him. Right. Um, So is there a casualness of like, got your broken sword right here. There you are. And he and he slaps it down on the table. Right. Is there a casualness to that? Yeah. It's his sword, right? This is not a museum piece. Again, this is his sword, and it's broken, right? Uh, you know, and he, you know, he has the pieces, right? He's not going to lose the pieces. He's not going to treat it disrespectfully. He's not going to uh, treat it just cavalierly. Um, but, um, uh, but he, um, but, but again, this is not. Uh, uh, this is this is not something. This is. Uh, the weapon that he has been carrying in preparation for, you know, wielding it soon. So, again, he's... Uh, to me, it feels sort of... Um, um, sort of right, I think, uh, in, uh, in, this, in this way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tora Marthen and uh, Aranas are suggesting that the ring and the sword serve as a sort of a two-factor authentication of the uh, era of Isildur. Uh, it makes... <laughs> Makes makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Um, uh, but yeah, Bruinier, exactly. Him and all his ancestors since Isildur. Absolutely. I mean, have they all carried it around? I'd be interested in that, actually. I don't know if every single chieftain of the Dúnedain has carried the shards of Narsil in a, in a scabbard on his hip, right? Um, have they worn the ring? I'm sure they've worn the ring. I'm sure that all of them have worn the ring. I am not sure that he... Wears it on that they've all worn it on their hips, right? Um, I think that um, I, I think that they. I think it's very possible. I'm not saying you know that it's certain or that there's clear evidence for this, but I am. Uh, I would not at all be surprised if Aragorn were the first of the chieftain of the Dúnedain to wear it. Like that when he when he learns when he knows that it is going to be his destiny to wield Narsil, that he straps it on, even though it's, and you know, it's like as a, as like a sign even to himself of his, of what he's awaiting, right? Of the preparations that he's making of this future, this doom uh, that lies ahead of him. Yes, uh, uh, Amathorn, the time has come for Aragorn, right? Uh, the moment, the hour is not yet, but the time 
is now. He it is going to happen in his time. Um, so um, anyway, um, yeah. No, I I am sure Veronica that that you know that that it passed from father to son. Um, but again, my question is just: Did everybody else wear it around? Um, and uh, you know, I am. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't know, uh, but I think if I were doing an adaptation of this, I would make it so that Aragorn were the first one to carry it, that, like, the girding on of Narsil was a big deal. Um, not quite as big a deal as the reforging of Narsil is going to be, but, you know, kind of like the first step in that, uh, uh, in that, in that direction. Um, that's interesting, Irindus. Irindus says, Aragorn's attitude here also may be a pretense to test Boromir's reaction. A bit of the rascal strider, not putting on any airs. Um, that is interesting. Um, uh, certainly, neither his action, nor anything that he says, and as we pointed out, he only says, here in the House of Elrond, more shall be made clear to you, here's the sword that was broken. Right? Um, uh, so, he's not given any information and there's nothing in his action or there's nothing in his words or even in his action, which says you should be taking me seriously or worse. Like you should be revering me right now, by the way. Right. Um, if he, imagine if he had done what, um, movie Aragorn had did, right? Imagine book Aragorn. So, you know, and here in the house of Elrond, more should be made clear to you. And he pulls out the broken sword and then he holds it like this and he, he lays it down and then backs away with his hands on it, with his, you know, his hands on his breast, right? Bowing to the sword as he lays it down on the table. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, Irindus, I, I think you're right that there's a kind of, uh, claim to that, that would, um, get, I think, a little sort of weird. Um, uh, but certainly it would be more of a claim, right? It would be, it would be more, uh, more, more, more active. But Cecilia, yeah, no, he doesn't throw it on the table and breathe. He does show it, uh, right? You know, he, he shows it to Sam and uh, shows that it is broken. Um, but, um, uh, but, uh, but he, yeah, Marianne, that's what he does. And that's what, that's what Phil Maragorn does. That's how he, uh, uh, he, after he restore, you know, puts the shards of Narsil back on its little museum platform. That's that's how he acts towards it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I would also the last thing I will say because we I do want to move on. In fact, to the next slide, our first official slide of the day. Um, uh, that anyway, the last thing I would say is that there is it's sort of a following up on. Um, uh, uh, Tony, your point there, the casting of the sword implies that he could claim the throne, but he isn't doing so now. That idea that he's sort of casting it down between them. It's not quite like you had cast a gauntlet, Matt. I think you had mentioned that at the beginning, um, as if it were a challenge, right? Um, but the casting of it down, it's almost as if he's, um, uh, he's, (sighs) I don't want to. I don't want to speak too strongly here. It's not like he's relinquishing claim to it, right? Um, but he's putting it between them, right? He's putting it in like a neutral spot. Anybody could step forward and sort of take the sword, right? He's not. Uh, he's not making Boromir come over and kiss his ring, right? He's not saying, "Kneel before me, and I'll show you the sword that was broken," right? You know, and, and uh, you know, swear to me your allegiance. And and again, he, he could do something like that. You know, he could be like. 
The riddle told you to seek the sword that was broken. I am the wielder of the sword that was broken. I am the one that you that you seek. Um, he's not making it about him. He's like, plop, there it is. There's the sword that was broken. What you going to do, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Trifle, this is not Finrod in his crown, casting down his crown. He, he's, not, he's not renouncing it or doing anything like that. But it's almost like he's, um, well, again, I'd, every time I, I start to say something, I feel like I'm saying it too strongly. I'd, it's not that he's challenging Boromir. Uh, it's that he's, um, yeah, the ball is in your court, Boromir. Simon, it's kind of like that, right? It's like, how are you going to respond, right? Um, I'm going to set this out here. If you want to make a grab for it, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not keeping it right in front of me, right? I'm not, I'm just, I'm setting it out there and, uh, and then we'll see what happens, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> tell me it's not mine, I dare you, says Aranas. Something like that. Something like that. Um, uh, yeah, Trifle, I think at the very least, Aragorn has to be expecting some kind of challenge, right? There's no way that Boromir, or at least he's got to be thinking. Aragorn has got to, especially since Aragorn's no idiot, right? And he has had plenty of opportunity already to observe Boromir. Even if he hasn't met Boromir before, which I don't think there's much evidence that he does know Boromir. Um, I mean, he's been there in Minas Tirith, uh, but Boromir was... Oh, what are the dates? Somebody tell me, how old was Boromir? Was Boromir born yet when Aragorn was there during the Thorongil days? I'm, I'm forgetting my dates. Um, but uh, yeah, he's like two. That's what I thought. He was he was he was a kid. So, right. Um, uh, anyway, um, so he doesn't know Boromir, but I think he's already had plenty of time to assess Boromir, right? To kind of get a feel for Boromir. Certainly this past speech, both the quality of this speech, as we've talked about, but the pride of this speech, right? Um, and, he, and the way he speaks of, he spoke of his father, especially there at the end of the speech. He's got to know, Aragorn has got to know that some kind of, cha- that Boromir's not just going to absolutely take this lying down, right? That some kind of challenge of him, um, some kind of proof of his claim is going to be needed, right? Um, in order uh, for Boromir to totally buys into this. And Rayburns, that is also an excellent point. He knows Denethor uh, and uh, uh, probably knows or can tell that Boromir is Denethor's favorite. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and again, even knowing the dad and thinking like, well, if he's anything like his dad, okay, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, so I, I just... He's got to know, but so I, I see this as kind of, there, there seems to me a kind of openness here. This is why I keep pulling back from saying that he's challenging him or daring him or, uh, or it's not exactly like that. It's like he's, 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 he lays the sword in a, in a sort of a neutral spot. And Bruce, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I've been kind of thinking in, in closer in that direction too. Um, Bruce says, I wonder if we're misreading Aragorn here. I think he'd, 
he might feel a kinship with Boromir. They're both great warriors, both hardy travelers, very distant kinsmen, both royal, heirs to the same kingdom in different ways. Um, I, I, I do think that Aragorn is not just... Um, this is not just like a testosterone issue at this point, right? Um, you know, rising to a potential challenge by Boromir. Um, I think that he is going to have some sympathy with him, right? Um, even when I say I think he's anticipating a challenge, all I mean is that he's going to have diagnosed Boromir and suspect that he's going to feel that way. I think that it's very possible that Aragorn's reaction to that could be sympathetic, um, compassionate, right? Understanding where he's coming from. Um, uh, yeah, interesting. Flamifer suggests, you know, uh, Aragorn more inviting Boromir to alliance than challenging him. Yeah, yeah, though I, I, I I'm sorry, I forgot who it was who said this a minute ago. Um, I, that he, it's more like he's, yeah, uh, Simon was just saying it's like he's, like he's probing him, right? Um, yeah, yeah, and and Carita, you're absolutely right. You don't even have to know him as a person. You just have to know how transfers of power tend to go to know that you know uh, this the, 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 this could be a slightly thorny issue, right? Elrond apparently knows it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, okay. So that was, I think, an excellent example of us not talking about this slide anymore. So, um, with all that said, let's move on. Uh, to Boromir understanding the remainder of his riddle. There was a hush, and all eyes and all turned their eyes on Frodo. He was sudden he was taken sorry, shaken. He was shaken by a sudden shame and fear, and he felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring, and a loathing of its touch. He wished he was far away. The ring gleamed and flickered as he held it up before them in his trembling hand. Behold Isildur's bane said Elrond. Boromir's eyes glinted as he gazed at the golden thing. The halfling, he muttered. Is then the doom of Minas Tirith come at last? But why then should we seek a broken sword? All right, let's pause there. We'll get to Aragorn's words. Okay, Tony, I totally agree. Ring-induced temptation alert. Now, we spent a lot of time last week uh, discussing Frodo's reaction to the information about Aragorn, right? That he is the heir of Isildur and how he expects the, you know, how he jumps up, springs to his feet in amazement and everything. And our big question was, is this Frodo, um, uh, is this Frodo responding? Is the ring prompting him here? Is he going to run away? What's going on? And I was arguing, and I still feel very strongly that this is not, this is Frodo. This is the mind of Frodo. This is not the ring here. Um, I think that this is definitely the ring. See the difference, right? Uh, the difference between his amazement as he springs to his feet, uh, the his spontaneous statement about how it doesn't belong to him at all, which is completely counter to everything the ring has ever made anybody think about his relationship with the ring, right? Compared to shaken by a sudden shame and fear, and he felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring and a loathing of its touch. He wished he was far away. Now, Simon, it is the reluctance to reveal the ring and the loathing of its touch. Those are the things which, to me, say absolutely, absolutely, 
that's the ring. This is what is coming. This is this is what like ring induced feelings taste like, right? First of all, one trend that we have noticed is that ring induced thoughts. What are ring induced thoughts about? Every sort of like certified ring induced thought. What is the subject? Can we see the trend? The pattern? Yeah, for those, they're about the ring, right? They're about the ring. And specifically, they're about, they're about the ring and about your own self and about your own self's relationship with the ring, right? Um, that is, they're about like, uh, so remember back to Frodo uh, and his feelings about the ring when he was going to go throw the ring in the fire, right? That, I think, was one of the clearest sort of... Thir- we could get evidence of ring-induced thoughts from Bilbo during his conversation with Gandalf, right, in chapter one. But that was kind of secondhand, in a sense. That is, we could infer what the ring might have been making uh, Bilbo think. But we didn't get a direct third-person narrative telling us what Bilbo was thinking in those moments, not in the same way, right? In Frodo's, with Frodo's case, we've had several instances which, which seem to be very clearly um, uh, connected to the ring, right? Um, the first and, and one of the clearest, I think, are those feelings that Frodo has when he is reluctant to throw the ring into the fire in the fireplace at Bag End at the end of chapter two. And those thoughts are all about the... He, it's, it's about his response to the ring, right? His own response to the ring is what's being manipulated, right? Uh, he thinks how beautiful is the ring, right? How, uh, how, how perfect is its roundness, right? It is altogether precious, right? Those thoughts are clearly ring-induced thoughts, right? Um, the thoughts of ownership, those, that impulse to put your own claim to the ring beyond doubt that Gandalf talks about, right? Um, that Gollum and Bilbo so obviously shared and which we can already be getting to see with the use of that word precious that bubbles up in that first ring-induced set of thoughts in Frodo, um, we can see that same kind of, um, uh, kind of power there, right? Um, okay, so, the, and, and, I think also it's pretty clear that the ring is influencing his thoughts when he is tempted to put on the ring um, as the uh, Nazgul is coming closer to him in the Shire, right before Gildor and Glorian comes in. Um, yeah, now, Flamifer, I totally agree with you. The thing that is most fascinating to me about the loathing of its touch is that although the topic is the same, right, how you feel about the ring, how you are emotionally reacting to the ring, it's opposite, right? He is now gripped with this loathing of the ring's touch. He doesn't want to grab it and take it out. He feels a great reluctance to reveal the ring. Those two things seem to be very close together, right? Uh, uh, That is... I think that the the latter is seems to be sort of an expression connected with the former. The great the loathing of its touch uh, is an expression of, or sort of extension of, or even maybe explanation of a great reluctance to reveal the ring. Right. Um, uh, okay. So 
And this suggests to me a, a really interesting point. We'll get to the shame, uh, evil Dr. Cannon. Um, we'll get to the shame. I want to I focus first on, the, because again, of all of this, these, th- these passages are complicated, right? Because just because he's feeling these things doesn't mean that this is like 100% coming from the ring, right? Um, some of this might be his reaction to these feelings themselves, right? So we have to, um, we have to be careful there. Um, oh, and somebody remind me when we get to Elrond's behold statement, um, uh, Mike, you were just reminding me there. Somebody was talking about how interesting it was that it's Gandalf, not Elrond, who says, "Bring the hour has come, bring forth the ring." Um, like here's Gandalf now moving forward the agenda. We'll come back to that, but I want to focus. Uh, I, I want to finish this first, but don't let me forget to come back to that when we talk about behold Isildur's bane. Okay. Um, okay. So, so, stay with me as we focus in on that one thought, and then we'll get to the other things. He felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring and a loathing of its touch. I think this is the ring inducing these feelings in him. I think that these impulses are coming from the ring, just as the impulse to put on the ring uh, and reveal himself was coming from the ring before. And the desire to get out, right? His temptation to put on the ring and flee out of the barrow, leaving his friends behind to die, I think was also clearly a thought which was influenced by the ring. And also, of course, the temptation to get the heck out of Tom Bombadil's house was, I think, also a uh, reaction by the ring. Um, So let's kind of put all these things together, right? What is the pattern that we can see? So let's think about those instances. Let's just take those for, 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 for now, right? One, Frodo's feeling when he's trying to throw the ring in the fire. Two, Frodo's feelings uh, when he is in the Prancing Pony, right? That desire to put on the ring in the Prancing Pony. Three, his... Um, Yeah, sorry. The, in the house of Tom Bombadil, four in the barrow, uh, in in the barrow, right with the barrow white, and five here, right. What is the pattern? What is the pattern there? Is there? Can we see any trends? I've left out some on purpose, Tony. Uh, you'll notice that I've left out the two when he was confronting the Nazgul, first in the Shire and then on Weathertop, because one could say there's some uncertainty there as to how much of that command to put on the ring comes from the ring and how much from the Nazgul, right? I think it's a ring impulse, personally, but there's like a potential confounding variable there, right? So for now, I'm just, I'm leaving those out. Um Interesting. Trifle says, if I'm not mistaken, the word sudden or something like that seems to be involved in all of them. That's really interesting. Yes. When this sudden fit, this sudden feeling comes upon them, um, uh, that, that does seem to be an indication that his own thoughts and feelings are being sort of invaded, 
right? Good trifle. One, um, uh, one trend is that it's very emotional. It's not a logical appeal. It's an appeal to the, to the emotions in all of them. Now, there is a logical appeal that follows, or rather, the initial emotional thought almost always leads to rationalization, as we have seen, right, um, at various points. Imagining, you know, himself, like, you know, his Gandalf would admit that the, there had been no other choice, right, in the barrow, I'm thinking here, right? Um, uh, okay. Uh, so, okay, but, but I agree with you that, that this, the, the hit, right, the, the attack of the ring seems to be purely emotional. The feeling of a, tra- you know, he's thinking about throwing it in the fire, so the ring hits him with a whammy that says, ooh, don't I look nice? You really, you really don't want to throw me away, do you? Right? You wouldn't throw me in the fire. Look at how beautiful I am. Here, Frodo is like, I'm going to bring out the ring and show it to the council, and the ring is like, oh, you don't want to do that. No, you don't want to touch me. I'm so gross. Right? And those are opposite. Right? But apart from being opposite, they're very similar. Right? They hit very similarly, and they seem to be a similar kind of emo- sudden emotional response to a thought about the ring that Frodo has. Right? Um... Yes, Tony, also that the uh, feeling seems strange and out of place. Yes, exactly. Um, good. Trifle, I agree that the rationalization itself might not come from the ring in the sense that the ring is feeding a string of logic to Frodo. It could very well be Frodo himself trying to make sense of the emotions. Having had a set of emotions suddenly fed in to his system and him feeling, thinking that these must be his feelings, right? He doesn't seem to fully recognize that these are external um, or have an external source. They do feed into a train of rationalization, right? Um, uh, Okay. But the difference. It's one thing for me to say, Flamifer, I don't want to lose your point entirely here, right? Um, It's one thing for me to say Frodo's desire, you know, his um, attraction to the ring uh, in the parlor at Bag End and his loathing of the ring at the Council of Elrond. I can say all I want that those are very similar, but they are also completely opposite, as you say. But this is, to me, the most interesting thing. You guys know that in general, I am not very strongly in the the ring is sentient and is making plans camp. There are some people who like to think of the ring in that way as if the ring is this independent, free-thinking power that is sentient and, uh, uh, and operating kind of on its own and um, uh, attempting actively to manipulate events around it. Um, I am not a big um, so, uh, proponent of that reading of the ring. However, this, um, this moment suggests to me that the opposite reading of the ring is almost impossible. That is, if we rule the ring, if, if, if we, if we read the ring as completely inert, right? It has properties. It can influence people. In the same way, not in the same way, but 
just like a like a radioactive object can influence people too, right? Um, it's magical and it has an influence on people, but again, it's not making plans, right? It's not it's not responding to anything. It's just it's what it does, right? It's just following its own nature, right? Um, and its nature is to make people desire it, and to, like it's a ring of power. It's thing is dominating the wills of others and so when you have it it's like okay why are we not dominating the wills of other of others that's what i'm for right surely you want to use me to dominate the will of others because that is what i am all about 100 percent every day right so um every minute not spent dominating the will of others is a moment wasted as far as i the non-sentient ring is concerned right um so i uh, Anyway, I, if the ring always reacts in the same way, it wouldn't do this, right? It would not... The ring would have to... In, in order for the ring to know that ha, the emotion it needs to feed Frodo in the parlor at Bag End is attraction, and the emotion it needs to feed Frodo now is repulsion, right? It has to be able to um, assess the situation. It's got to have some way of figuring out. It's not just acting automatically, right? You have to say that in some sense, it knows, senses, that it wants to be revealed. Being revealed is like what it has been trying to do on multiple occasions, right? Certainly in the Inet Brie, probably in the Shire and at Weathertop as well, right? So like, Exposing itself, drawing attention to itself is something we have seen it go out of its way, literally out of its way. It, like, contrived to end up on Frodo's finger somehow, right? Um, so, you know, in, in The Prancing Pony, of course, I mean. Um, so, anyway, that's been, that's been its M.O. much of the time, but not all the time, Right? Um, remember, Frodo also felt a reluctance to hand the ring over to Tom Bombadil. He didn't want to do that either. Now, we don't get the same, like, the same internal monologue, right? It happens really quickly. He says, show me the precious ring, and Frodo just kind of hands it over. He just sort of obeys Tom Bombadil, because that's kind of what one does, right? Tom Bombadil says, you should do a thing. You know, he makes a statement in the imperative mood, and it might as well be in the indicative mood, right? You're in his house, it happens, and so he hands over the ring. Um, but then he's disturbed by the fact that he's handed over the ring. That is to say, I don't think the ring wanted to reveal itself to Tom Bombadil. I don't think that... And from everything that we see in the temptation that Frodo experiences to put on the ring and get out of there, um, I don't see any reason to think that the ring was wanting to reveal itself and its powers there. So again... The ring doesn't do the same thing all the time. It doesn't operate in the same way. It does not simply act out the same principle. Um, so, um, I agree that there are new circumstances here, Mike, and it is possible to construct... Um, and Mike, I think you were the one saying this before. Maybe someone else was as well. It is possible to still construct a completely inert ring theory uh, that fits with this. If you say that it is inert, but it responds differently in different circumstances, right? Um, 
So if you like, if all of the circumstances are always the same, right, then, uh, um, then it would respond the same, right? So if we could, uh, if we could do some controlled experiments <clears throat> for how the ring makes Frodo's Frodo feel, we would see it acting consistently under consistent circumstances. Um, I can buy that, but again, it's hard to not having access to the ring uh, and a laboratory. It's hard to uh, it's hard to say that. Um, but um, Rhiannon, that's an interesting question. Is the ring getting stronger? Might it be somehow more sentient here than in the previous temptations? <sighs> is the ring getting stronger yet? I'm not sure that it is. It's possible. I mean, we know it's going to be getting stronger later on. Um, it certainly seems to correlate with the, um, uh, you know, uh, there's some kind of distance ratio involved, right? Uh, but um, but is that the only thing involved? I'm not really sure. Yeah, Isildur's Bane shall waken, Mike. You're right. I mean, is this what it waking up w- looks like? You know, again, coming back to that potential reading of that line... Um, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, Evil Dr. Cannell, let me get back to your other question, because I think they're connected. He was shaken by a sudden shame and fear and he felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring and a loathing of its touch. What is he ashamed of? And what is he afraid of? Exactly. What's he ashamed of? And what's he afraid of? You know, for Thoughtless, I am sure there is some stage fright involved, right? Um... He wished he was far away. Yes, that, I think, is stage fright. But it's also similar to what we've seen before. Um, He wished he could put on the ring and escape from the silly situation, right? That's just what he thought in The Prancing Pony. That's just very similar to what he thought in The Barrow. That's similar to what he seemed to have been thinking in the house of Tom Bombadil, right? That's a, we, we have a trend there, right? So on the one hand, is that stage fright? Sure. I'm sure he does feel stage fright, right? But, you know, trifle, that's starting to sound like a rationalization, right? He feels this sudden feeling. Well, but of course he should. Right? Why shouldn't he feel shame and fear when all of a sudden not just a crowded room is all looking at him, but this crowded room for crying out loud? Elrond, right, who Frodo had just been having a, a historical fanboy moment with, right, earlier on. And I mean, like, and Gorfino, everybody, right? Um, so, yes, no reason he shouldn't. I mean, it's very normal that he should, uh, Mordewin, feel inadequate among all these high folk. Absolutely. But again, that seems to me a rationalization, right? Um, At least potentially. It's not a fully articulated rationalization, but it seems very similar. Back to the shame and fear. What's he ashamed of? 
and what's he afraid of. There's not much for him to be ashamed of. And it is also sudden trifle. Exactly. Um, yes. Um, yeah. Simon, that's my vote. My vote for what is he afraid of? Now, he doesn't stop and analyze the fear, right? If anything, the he wished he was far away makes it sound like he's rationalizing the fear as stage fright, right? Um, and Mike, if he's if his outbursts, if his previous outbursts and putting his foot in his mouth are shaming him, um, the shame is late in coming, right? I mean, like the time to feel ashamed was earlier, not now, right? Um, yeah, um, the fear again. So he doesn't analyze the fear. The sudden fear that smacks him here. Um, I think is fear of reviewing the ring, right? Fear of losing the ring. Um, the hour has come. The hour, not only because remember, as we talked about this last time, he did not come to Rivendell to reveal the ring. He came to Rivendell to surrender the ring. And it's one thing to say, it's one thing to play with the idea of surrendering the ring to the Council of the Wise, right? It is another thing, actually, to do it, right? And so far, Bilbo alone in history has gone beyond playing and actually done it, right? Frodo, Gandalf has just said, the hour has come, right? That's what that hour is to Frodo, the time to give up the ring. And I think that the fear is... Fear of giving up the ring. Fear of losing the ring. He doesn't want to do it. And yes, exactly, Mike. I think that that's what the shame is, too. Fear that they might ask him for it and shame that he might refuse to give it. Um, uh, yeah. Now, good, Enoch. Uh, I, yeah, so Enoch is wanting to emphasize very rightly. This is, it's an excellent distinction. It doesn't say that he feels a great loathing to show them the ring. It says that he feels a loathing of its touch, right? And again, that's the thing which more than anything convinces me that this is clearly from the ring because it's about the ring. It is as personal to the ring. Um, to say he felt a great loathing of the idea of showing them the ring, that could be complicated, right? There could be lots of factors involved with that. But a kind of nigh-magnetic repulsion from the ring itself. Like, I, the idea of touching the ring is disgusting. We know that this is not normal, right? Not only not normal for Frodo, he's never expressed anything, any kind of reluctance. to. T he was fiddling with the ring in his pocket for crying out loud when he was giving his speech in Bree, right? He touches it very casually. And, even, and there, of course, we see him even kind of making an excuse to touch it. And we know that Bilbo explicitly states to Gandalf in chapter one that the desire to touch it and hold it and wear it more and more is something that grows upon one, right? So we have lots of evidence to say that a loathing of the touch of the ring is not correlated with normal possession. Now, you may remind us, as somebody was reminding us earlier, that Gandalf, or not, that Gandalf said that Gollum both hated and... Uh, Loved it, right? The ring. Um, yes, 
But that, I think, is an advanced stage, right? That is to say, he... Gollum had reached a point where he knew, surely knew, on some level, the part of his mind that is still free from the dominion of the ring knows that the ring is destroying him, right? Knows that he is being wrecked physically, spiritually, emotionally, ethically, psychologically wrecked by this ring. But he can't give it up, right? He can't put it aside forever all he can do is sort of temporize with it by not carrying it with him at all times. And that, as we learn in the context of Bilbo's own experience, is kind of a victory on its own, right? Bilbo, too, had begun to feel thin and stretched, right? He had begun to feel the negative effects of having the ring and how it was impacting him negatively, and I can't seem to make up my mind. Um, he didn't. He seemed to understand, have less of an insight that it was due to the ring, uh, directly, right? Um, uh, and anyway, so he, um, Frodo's nothing like there, though. I, again, I, I, I don't think that this loathing of the touch is that kind of thing. This is not come on, come on gradually. This is not an internal response to the perception that the ring is doing you harm. Frodo's not there. Frodo isn't there yet. He's going to get closer to that and in a more accelerated way uh, than either Gollum or Bilbo did, but he's not there yet. This loathing of the touch of the ring is again, like, it indicates the ring itself as the source of this feeling, right? It is repelling him directly, just as it attracted him directly the first time we saw this in his parlor at Bag End. Right. It's flipping the switch in the other direction. This is a very that's both of those are very simple kind of reactions. Right. To make you want me or to make you disgusted by me, to 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 attract you or to repel you. Um, But the ring does seem to be flipping the poles on that particular magnet. Right. Seem to be choosing when to operate in that way. I'm going to attract you to my to touching me. Right. In when I'm in your pocket in the prancing pony and I'm thinking revealing myself would be a good thing or it says I'm going to inspire loathing at the Council of Elrond when I do not want to be presented and given up uh, into the care of Elrond and Gandalf and everybody else. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Several of you are talking about... um, sort of uh, addiction and, addic- and addiction mindset. Tony says anyone who's ever quit smoking can tell you what it's like to be disgusted by the thing you are hooked on. Yes, and there does seem to be an element of that, like that kind of thinking. With Gollum, for instance, what Gandalf is describing about the loving and hating that Gollum has for it. Um, and even Bilbo seems to have a tinge of that, right? Um but, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, so the shame and fear. I definitely think that the shame and fear are emotions that are connected. To the, like this is, it's, it's, it is part of, in a sense, it is part of the emotional whammy that the ring is hitting Frodo with here. The reluctance, the, the loathing of its touch is the most direct stimulus, right? Direct, the simplest stimulus. The great reluctance to reveal the ring I think is also definitely from the ring. And again, it fits the pattern. It's opposite, but it fits the pattern. Reveal me, conceal me, 
reveal me, conceal me. These are the two two things the ring is saying one or the other to Frodo, right? Don't throw me into the fire. You know, do, put me back in your pocket. Don't put me out and throw me into the fire, right? Put me away. Keep me safe, right? Um, put me on. Put me on display, right? Betray my presence to everybody in the Init Bree. Um, those are... Um, those are the two different impulses, and now it's going hard into "Don't show me." Yeah, Irindus, I, I, I think we can see some fairly binary uh, impulses here. Um, I think that Frodo's is the ring. Is there a shame whammy that the ring is hitting him with as well? I don't want to rule this out. I don't want to rule this out. Um, I think it's possible because shame is a kind of emotion that uh, seems kind of ring-esque, you know? Like, I think it's it's uh, it's something that can certainly fit. Um, it doesn't seem unlike the ring to inspire shame. Uh, it certainly would be a way to manipulate him like by inspiring that emotion in Frodo, it, it, it serves to manipulate him. If what the ring is wanting, in whatever sense it wants, if it is wanting Frodo to not bring it out, to make him feel ashamed, like therefore reluctant to display something, right? Um, that would work. Yes, shame is definitely correlated with hiding uh, and not with open revealing, Right. Um, so to uh, make him feel shame would, you know, might do that. Or is the shame Frodo's own reaction? Uh, Mike, as you were suggesting before, I, I kind of like that as well. Um, yeah. Now, Sarah, that's exactly what I'm kind of wondering here, too. If we think if we're thinking of the, you know, the sort of the simple ring theory, the inert ring theory. Right. One way to articulate the inert ring theory is that one of the qualities of the ring, which again is sort of an automatic and non-sentient quality of the ring, is that it responds to good and evil, essentially, right? Um, put it near evil, and it wants to get closer. It wants to reveal. It, it shifts into reveal me mode, right? Confront it with great goodness, and it. Um, it goes into conceal me mode, right? Um, I think that actually could be made to fit in most cases, actually, that we've come across. Um, it's So, yes, it's a spiritual magnet, Angrist. Yes, exactly. Um, I can only think, Sarah, of one instance that doesn't fit that pattern, and that's the barrow. In the barrow, he's surely in the presence of evil. Um, so you'd think the ring would go into reveal me mode, which I guess you could say maybe it is by saying put the ring on and escape. The escape's a lie, right? Playing on Frodo's fear in order to get Frodo to put on the ring. Um, who knows exactly what would have happened? Well, Gandalf seems to know, right? Gandalf says that um, that moment in the barrow was touch and go, right? That was um, uh, That was one of... Um, one of the like closest escapes that Frodo had the whole time, suggesting 
that if Frodo had given in to that temptation in the barrow and put on the ring, it would have been lost. It, the ring, as well as it, Frodo. Um, so I think it's actually quite possible that it, um, um, uh, that it is, uh, yeah, see, but, but so, so Flamifer, but hang on, that's, see, that's what I'm, tr- well, that's not, not what I'm trying to resist, that's not, but that's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about inert ring theory, right? Uh, a way of, like, we're trying, we're exploring this idea of the ring being completely, not having any wants. There's the, there's no sense in which you can really say the ring wants something. I know Gandalf says that, but the inert ring theory would say Gandalf was speaking metaphorically. He wasn't speaking literally there. Um, he was kind of trying to help Frodo understand the situation. Um, but it was, it was, uh, it, it wasn't literal what Gandalf was saying there. That, that would be how you'd have to read that if you believed in the inert ring theory. Um, uh, this also is why uh, some of you were saying, well, why wouldn't it want to reveal itself? Wouldn't the ring want to corrupt? Uh, one of, I, isn't this room full of wonderful candidates for corruption? I mean, wouldn't, isn't this exactly, um, uh, isn't this exactly the kind of crowd that the ring would want to get involved with, right? I mean, wouldn't the ring be smacking its immaterial lips, its metaphorical lips, as it's looking around this room, saying, oh, this is what I'm talking about, right? We've got future ring lords galore here, right? I mean, let me count the ways in which I could wreak havoc in this population, right? Uh, By all me, cast me like the golden apple of discord into the middle of this room, please, right? Absolutely. Like, if the ring were truly cunning... Right. If the ring were plotting, um, surely that's what the ring would do. Right. But it's not. Um, Anyway, now you can just say if you uh, we should call something else. We've got uh, we've got the inert ring theory. I guess the other the opposite would be the sentient ring theory. Um, But um, uh, anyway, yeah. See, mm, Angrist, I. Yeah. The idea of the ring being an extension of Sauron. Yes. Or no. I mean, yes, it is. It's a a portion of his power, but does that mean his will? In the same way? Like, his conscious will? Um, how much does the ring take after its dad? You know what I mean? Does it share the same opinions? Is it going to go through a teenage rebellious stage? Where it's going to be like, you're not the boss of me, Dad? You know, like, I'd, I mean, I get, will, would it make its own plans? Um, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's not a horcrux. It's not. I mean, actually, in some ways, of course, it appeals to the same uh, fairy tale traditions as the horcrux does. But I agree, it is. it doesn't operate in the same way as Voldemort's horcruxes operate. Uh, in Harry Potter. I mean, at least as of the last couple books. Um, anyway, um, we're not going to resolve this question tonight, but this is an important and interesting piece of data. Um, I, again, I will freely admit the shift in tack, the clear, the 
diametrically opposed change in tack to Frodo that the ring takes here. Um, it is not wholly inconsistent with inert ring theory, but it is a challenge to it. it the, we, we, we know for a fact after, I mean, if we accept this as a ring induced emotion, which I think I am a hundred percent convinced of, um, then we have now very clear evidence that the ring does not always act the same way. Um, so, yeah, exactly, Tony. The whole novel is concerned with this question. We've got much evidence to consider in the future, so there's no point trying to make definite conclusions now to this question. But it's a very interesting moment. Um, on the whole, coming back to the shame and fear, I think the shame and fear are from the ring. I think that that's not Frodo's reaction to it. I think those are from the ring. Um, and the primary reason, and uh, Trifle, I think this was you from earlier on, um, I think that the... Um, uh, it's, the, it's the use of the word sudden that, more than anything, suggests to me uh, that those emotions are inspired by the ring here. The fear and the shame. Both the shame and the fear. Um, he was shaken by a sudden shame and fear, and he felt a great reluctance to reveal the ring and a loathing of its touch. Those, that seems to be, so the, the simple things that he's hit with, loathing of the touch of the ring, shame, fear, and the, what they kind of add up to is a great reluctance to reveal the ring that he feels, Right? The ring gleamed and flickered as he held it up before them in his trembling hand. Now, um, the gleaming and the flickering, I don't think, I don't think that that necessarily means the ring is glowing with its own light. Things do Right? Like Gollum's eyes. Bilbo can see Gollum's eyes lighting the tunnel from uh, when he's standing behind Gollum, right? On the other side of his head, uh, the light of Gollum's eyes lights up the, the tunnel, right? So we know that Gollum's eyes, in fact, emit light, according to the text. Um, so I'm not saying that emitting light is weird uh, and uh, totally unknown or uncalled for. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's what's being described here. Um, there are going to be sources of light, whether it's reflected sunlight or whether it's going to be reflected firelight. Um, I, I think either one of those could be leading to the gleaming and flickering as he's holding it up and it's being, you know, it's moving and shining, um, you know, in the light. Um, uh Yeah, Tony, what it reminds me of, I mean, since we've just been reflecting on this, is how struck Frodo was by the um, the perfect smoothness and beauty of the ring in the parlor at Bag End, right? Um, 
Yeah, Mad Violinist says, if his hand is trembling, the ring is moving in the light, and hence the flickering. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. The visual appeal of the ring, Tony. Um, that th- Those seem to me to be indicated here. Good. Ambrosius Aurelianus points out that uh, the ring gleams and Boromir's eyes glint when he looks at it. Um, notice the alliteration there, Trifle, right? Not just between glinted and gazed at the golden thing, right? Boromir's eyes glinted as he gazed at the golden thing, right? Um, the three G's there in that sentence, but how both of them pick up on gleamed, right, in uh, the sentence before. Um, I know, where's the gloom, right? Uh, it's uh, Things are supposed to gleam in the gloom, here we have gleaming with no gloom, which is weird. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so Ambrosius Aurelianus, I agree that the glint in Boromir's eyes, and we may be forgiven for suspecting there's more to it than this, um, but that does seem to reflect suggest, uh, uh, draw our attention to the visual attractiveness of the ring, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Mudmore, it's literally just a gold band. It's a shiny gold band, but it's just a gold band. It never shows a scratch or sign of wear, so it's not going to be, as many of us know who have been wearing golden bands for a very long time, many years, um, they, they get kind of uh, less glimmery as time goes on. Um, uh, you know, when uh, on the rare occasions when I can get my uh, when I could get my wedding ring off my hand, I, sadly, I've not worn it for a while because I remember when I was wearing a cast a couple years back, I broke the knuckle on my ring finger on my left hand and I can't get my wedding ring back on anymore. Uh, I'm still working on that. Uh, but anyway, um, I, but the. Uh, when you look at the inside of your wedding band compared to the outside, right? Uh, it's um, uh, it's it's much more gleamy, right? But remember, the ring of power doesn't show any sign of wear, so it's going to be just as gleamy as it as it ever was. Uh, so it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna shine, um, but um, but yeah, it doesn't shine like a gemstone, which it doesn't sparkle like a gemstone sparkles. Um, I do agree, though, as somebody. Uh, suggested before that flickered is kind of a fire-like word, right? Um, uh, So the idea of there being something almost like a little flicker of flame as he holds up the ring is kind of an attractive thought. Um, uh, I wonder if there's something like that that the the film people were playing on, right? When the... uh, and, And it's one of my favorite visual shots uh, from the the whole scene uh, when they show the ring sitting there and then you can see like the, the image of fire superimposed on the ring. I think that's really cool. Exactly. It's almost as if it were a wheel of fire. It's not yet a wheel of fire, right? But it's, uh, it's anticipating uh, at one day becoming a wheel of fire. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Behold Isildur's bane, said Elrond. Now here's me not forgetting what I wanted to say before. Um, The significance of Gandalf being the one to say to Frodo, hold it up, 
I think there are two things here. First, I think it shows pretty clearly Gandalf and Elrond... Elrond is running this meeting, right? But Gandalf and Elrond collaborated on the agenda, right? I think it's fairly clear that Elrond and Gandalf are a tag team here uh, in this... uh, uh, in this meeting, right, in this council. Gandalf has said very little. In fact, this is his first... Is this his first recorded speech? I think it is. Has Gandalf spoken up in this chapter to this point? I mean, since they got to the meeting? I don't think so. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, it's like the vice chair of the Council of Elrond steps forward, right? Um, so... Anyway, yeah, I, 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 the fact that Gandalf is the one who says the hour has come, hold up the ring, Frodo, and then Elrond says, behold, Isildur's bane. The two of them are clearly working together there. Um, uh, it's as if they had planned that between the two of them. I do agree um, with, um, uh, let's see, who was saying this. Yeah, Mike was saying Gandalf is the Hobbit Wrangler, and I agree. Um, To say the same thing a different way, I think it's an act of uh, compassion, if compassion is quite the right word. Um, An act of compassion to Frodo, um, for him to, for Gandalf to be the one to say this, right? Um, uh, Exactly. Gandalf is his friend. Um, And What's more, Gandalf is going to know. Gandalf is going to know that it's not going to be easy for Frodo to give up the ring. It's not going to be quite as hard as it was for Bilbo, perhaps. But it's not going to be trivial. Um, He's come here to do that. He's prepared to do that. Um, But Elrond, the great, mighty, wise, ancient Elrond, steps forth and says, Frodo of the Shire hand over the ring. It's a big deal, right? But if his friend Gandalf says, the hour has come, hold up the ring, Frodo, and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle, right? There's a kind of gentleness to that, I think, which is in part designed to make it easier for Frodo to actually do it. It's almost as if Gandalf suspected that upon being told this, Frodo would be hit with a sudden shame and fear and a great reluctance to reveal the ring, right? And he's trying to ease that for him. As Again, Gandalf has experience with this, having, with difficulty, brought Bilbo through this, a similar process, right, many years before. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Tony. He's acting as Frodo's guide. Um, uh yeah, Mike says, I, although I reckon that Gandalf doesn't think it's a likely outcome, he's probably mentally prepared to wrestle the ring out of Frodo's hand if it comes to it. Or at least he's going to... He had to exert his power to help Bilbo, right? Bilbo would not have done it by himself. People forget that. Bilbo would not have done it. Gandalf was putting forth his power to assist Bilbo. That's the whole Gandalf the Grey uncloaked thing, right, that was going on there. Is he going to have to? Um, is he going to have to put forth his power again? Right? Is he going to have to stage an intervention with Frodo, as he pretty much had to do with Bilbo? It's possible, right? It's possible. Um, 
Yes, Irindus, I love that. Um, it also gives Frodo a counter real uh, a, a counter rationalization, right? He's not giving up the ring at this moment, only answering Boromir's question, right? Let, let, let's, hey Frodo, let's help Boromir understand the remainder of his riddle, shall we? Right, that's all we're doing. Just we just need to explain those hard words, right? That Boromir was sent. Um, yeah, yeah, I do think that this is. Um, uh, a compassionate thing that Gandalf is the one who speaks up at this point. Um, and Elrond comes in and grants it his official stamp, right? His official stamp on this moment. Behold Isildur's bane. Boromir's eyes glinted as he gazed at the golden thing. The alliteration there, right? Um... One of the effects of alliteration, one at least I have always found it an inevitable effect of alliteration, is that it makes you pay attention to those words, right? It joins those words together. Um, this sentence inescapably connects glinted, gazed, golden, right? That is, we've got, in case you missed the glint in Boromir's eye... The fact that the glint in his eye is connected with his gazing at the ring, right? At the golden thing. Um, yeah, as if we're meant to be thinking of greed uh, there, Simon. Yeah, yeah. Um, Trifle says, honestly, the word thing is what draws my attention most in that sentence. Not sure why or what to do with it. Two things, I would say, Trifle. First, um to facilitate the use of the word golden, right? To, to facilitate the alliteration, right? But also there's a kind of objectification in it, the golden thing, right? Um, Boromir's desire for the ring. And I cannot see this as anything but Boromir desiring the ring. If the alliteration weren't there, I would be more willing to believe that Boromir was not looking at the ring with desire from the moment he saw it. But I agree with Sam, with Sam's assessment, that he feels that desire from the moment he sees it. And I think that the, alliter the alliteration emphasizes that. Glinted, gazed, golden. Right? Um, the glint in his eye is definitely connected to his gazing at the golden thing. Um, and the thing is slighting to some extent, right? Um, again, this, the, the word objectify is the word that I keep wanting to use there, right? Um, he's not thinking of it as the ring of power. He's not thinking of it as Isildur's bane, even. He's thinking of it as this beautiful golden thing, right? This object of desire. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it is... Uh, good. Tony says, such, su such a little thing, right? He's going to use that word again. Boromir, in dialogue, is going to use that word to describe the ring. And there, of course, Tony, he's diminishing it, or attempting to, with his words, right? As if it were no big deal, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the halfling, he muttered. Is then the doom of Minas Tirith come at last? 
But why then should we seek a broken sword? Okay. Um, right, it's just a trifle that Boromir fancies, uh, Chris, absolutely. Um, the halfling, he muttered. Is then the doom of Minas Tirith come at last? But why then should we seek a broken sword? Okay. Gandalf has just said, bring forth the ring, Frodo, and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. It doesn't seem that he does, right? I think Gandalf was a little previous uh, in that assessment, a little optimistic in his assessment of um, Boromir's understanding of the remainder of his riddle, right? Um yeah, uh, Amy asks, I wonder if anyone noticed Boromir's eyes glinting. I know one person who did, right? Definitely. There's at least one person in the room who certainly noticed that, right? Sam, exactly. We know that Sam noticed it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, does Aragorn notice it? I think he might do. Um does uh, uh, does Gandalf notice it? I think he might do. We know for a fact that Sam does. Um, but um, anyway, Gandalf, or Boromir's first thought that he expresses, right, is, is then the doom of Minas Tirith come? So he, he says the halfling, right? He gets it, right? Gandalf has just said, you'll understand the remainder of your riddle, and then the halfling stands forth, and he's like, Isildur's bane shall wake, and then the halfling forth shall stand. He's like, okay, now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. I get it. So, then shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand. So, the halfling standing forth and revealing Isildur's bane is a token that doom is near at hand. Tracking with you, Gandalf. Right? Is then the doom of Minas Tirith come at last? He asks. Which is revealing. Then he says, But why then should we seek a broken sword? Which I think is even more revealing. Now, uh, Mike says, I don't feel he's asking anyone else with his muttering. He's distracted and speaking his inner thoughts aloud. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, I think that the, I bet you if the narrator were telling us what's going on in Boromir's thought, it would probably use the word sudden to describe the onset of the emotions that Boromir is feeling at this particular moment, right? So having just been assailed with sudden emotions, right, he is, yes, distracted, right, and speaking his thought out loud. Um, I think he's saying the whole thing out loud. Um, okay, I see. So Tony is saying the halfling, he's, he's muttering the halfling, and then the rest of it he's, so he says, the halfling. Is then the doom of Minas Tirith, and the last he says to the room? Um, possibly. I could also see him muttering the whole thing. The halfling. Is then the doom of Minas Tirith come at last? But why, then, should we seek a broken sword? Um, I can see either reading, too, Mike.
I think in the end, at the end of the day, I'm going to come down on the side as the side of he's deliberately saying the last two sentences to the room. At least the last one. The last one seems to me the most important thing. I don't think when he says, why then should we seek a broken sword? I don't think that he's saying that to himself. I can imagine him saying, is then the doom of Minas Tirith come at last to himself? Um, but I don't think he's saying, why then should we seek a broken sword to himself? I think there is a, yes, Tony, exactly. I think he has an intended audience for that, that question, and I think that Aragorn is his intended audience. Yes. I think when he says, but why then should we seek a broken sword, he is saying that to Aragorn. And Aragorn responds to it. The words were not the doom of Minas Tirith, said Aragorn. Exactly, Simon. He does answer, Aragorn does answer both questions, as if they were directed openly, or at least, or or even to him personally. The second one, I am sure, is directed personally at Aragorn. Um, The first one, perhaps. Um, I said I thought that that first question is revealing. Here is what seems to me... um, Revealing about, and you're right. You guys who are remembering Boromir muttering to himself in Moria, which everybody overhears, which he didn't intend for them to overhear. Yes, he does have a habit of uh, uh, speaking his inner thoughts aloud uh, and being overheard. So it's not like that's going to be an unprecedented thing in his experience. Um, you're right that we don't know that yet, Simon. But still, again, like to say. This would not be unknown for Boromir to do this, I get. <laughs> Boromir doesn't have an inner monologue. Uh, he says everything out loud. Um, agreed. But um, let me go back to what I was saying, though, about the revealing, what I think is being revealed here. Boromir's first thought is, is the doom of Minas Tirith come at last? Aragorn responds to the first half of that question. The words were not the doom of Minas Tirith. I am more interested in the second half of that question. Come at last. Right? Boromir makes a good speech about how the glory of Gondor has not waned, nor is all its pride and dignity forgotten. Right? Um, Don't think about Gondor in the past tense, everybody. Right? Gondor is still fighting the good fight. It is due to our valor that all of you guys are spared. All these things that he's been saying. Right? But when when the token is shown, and I, I don't think there's any skepticism in Boromir there when he says the halfling. He gets it. Right? This... I, the the prophecy said we would be shown a token that doom was near at hand, and the token has been shown. The halfling has stood forth and revealed, and Isildur's bane has wakened. Right? I, Boromir is not skeptical here, I don't think. Not anyway of the token, right? Or apparently, in a sense, of the doom, right? But he says, has the doom of Minas Tirith come at last? Again, he can say all he likes. He can make fine speeches about how the pride and dignity of Gondor is not forgotten. But he is also anticipating the doom of Minas Tirith, right? He is expecting that it will come. And I don't think he is shocked um, 
I don't think he is shocked to hear that the doom of Minas Tirith is at hand, right? Um, so I agree that there is, Mike, the provincial element here, right? That he thinks, he assumes that the doom in question must obviously be the doom of Minas Tirith. Definitely. That, that element is certainly present again, I think. But, but I think that there's a, a, an underlying... Um, an underlying uh, uh, um, significance to that as well. And that is, I think that he's been thinking about the doom of Minas Tirith. Um, Tony, what does he mean by doom? Does he necessarily mean fall? Yes. Yes. I think he means that. I think that Boromir... When Boromir uses the word doom in that sentence, he means its final and ultimate destiny, that the fall of Minas Tirith is at hand, that Minas Tirith is doomed. I think that he, this is one of his deepest fears. Um, that, um, that doom is at hand. I think he's been afraid of this at least ever since that battle, right? Um, and his decision to leave and go on this journey because they are facing desperate times. They can't fight the enemy that has now come forth, right? The enemy they faced on that battlefield, which the battle which ended up with him and Faramir and a couple others swim in the river, right? They know. He knows. They can't win, right? Um, but I think it's more than him worrying about it, Simon. Um, I think that there is a there is a part of Boromir that believes that the end is nigh, that they are living in the last days of Minas Tirith. I think there is part of him that doesn't just fear that as an abstract thing, but in a sense believes that. Right? That to me is what I hear in Boromir leaping to that. Is then the doom of Minas Tirith come at last? At last. It was gonna come. It's only a matter of time. It's only a question. He doesn't believe that Minas Tirith is gonna stand forever. Boromir doesn't believe that. Boromir believes that Minas Tirith is gonna fall. Um, and he is desperate, Tony. Yes, he's desperate to try to prevent that fall. Not on my watch, right? Might be Boromir's slogan, perhaps. Um, exactly, Tessa. Nothing stands forever. Um, and again, certainly he's had reason to believe, reason to fear that the time of the doom of Minas Tirith is indeed come at last, right? Does this prophecy that they've received, is the function of this prophecy just to confirm that, right? To tell them, yeah, yeah, the doom has come at last, right? Um, uh, the time, the time is here. Um, and yes, I absolutely agree. If, in theory, the ring... He were experiencing some sudden emotions um, uh, that resulted... Uh, which had an external manifestation in uh, glinting, right? If he were having some sudden desires, right, uh, rising up within him for the ring, um, we know... We have seen that such sudden desires often lead immediately to rationalizations, right? Um, and 
that this could be part of that, I think is uh, very possible. Very possible. And Arnas, you're absolutely right. The idea that the doom of Minas Tirith has come at last is a conclusion supported by the trend in evidence. I mean, this is not... You don't have to be a particularly pessimistic individual uh, to live in Minas Tirith right now and believe that the doom of Minas Tirith has come at last. Um, uh, yes, exactly, Lincoln. Boromir is more fatalistic than he initially presents himself in his speech uh, following Elrond's... I agree, exactly. And that's what I think is revealing. Beneath that formal exterior, beneath his brave words, right, about Gondor, about their resolve, about, you know, their determination to fight on and continue to... Beneath that, I think this is a moment of honesty where we can see he doesn't really... Boromir doesn't have any hope, I don't think. Not real hope. Um, And that perhaps hope is one of the things that he was seeking here, but... um, Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, good. Cecilia, I did, it was, was asking about that, too, about um, this being a reaction to the ring throwing feelings his way. Um, right, Ray says, ironically, he's been staring straight in the face of Estelle the whole time. Right, yes, exactly. Um, speaking of hope, he says, why then should we seek a broken sword? Right. That sounds to me a challenge. Right. Um, I am not sure. So uh, we were talking earlier about Boromir's response here, the extent to which he's just kind of not tracking. Um, you know, the extent to which he might be failing to interpret, um, uh, failing to interpret the, uh, uh, the prophecy correctly. Right. And I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that he's failing exactly. Right. Um, I think he is, when he says, why then should we seek a broken sword? I think he's using the metaphor. I think he's not failing to get the metaphor. Um, because there are two, there are a couple different senses in which that question... There, there are a couple different senses which that question bears, right? On the one hand, if the point of this prophecy was just to communicate to us, the end is nigh, you know, make your peace and brace yourself because the doom of Minas Tirith has come at last. If that's the message, then why seek for the sword that was broken? What on earth is that going to do? Right? Exactly. If doom has arrived, the weapon of legend can be of no use. If the doom has arrived, nothing can be of any use. Why seek anything? Right? Um, So, why the command? Why the imperative at all if the message is doom has come at last, right? That's one sense that that question can bear. But another sense that this, that that question could bear is the sense of specific challenge to Aragorn, right? If Boromir is saying, look, I'm not stupid. I get the fact that you, dude, whoever you are, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, apparently, right? You are the wielder of this broken sword. And so in being told to seek the broken sword, I've been sent to you, right? 
what good is that going to do us? Right? And that, of course, itself bears a couple different senses. Again, first, in the context of that first sense of the question, right? Um, if the doom has come at last, what good are you going to do? Right? Who cares? Even if you are the heir of Isildur, so what? Right? The doom of Gondor is coming. So great. Are we going to have... So is, 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 is a king going to arrive in Minas Tirith in order to bury it? Right? I mean, seriously. Who cares? Um, but of course, also, it's like, well, if, if we are to hold out the possibility, right? If we're to hold out the possibility that the command we've been given, the seeking for the sword that was broken... Um, if there are councils that are stronger than Morgul's spells, which implies that there is something that can be done, that we shouldn't just, you know, lie down and die, uh, that seeking the sword that was broken has some, does offer a kind of remedy to the situation, right? Then explain to me, Bub, how you constitute a remedy, Right? Why should we seek a broken sword? And I think I think that far from simply failing to understand the metaphor, Boromir is throwing the metaphor back into <laughs> right, that's King Bub to you, <laughs> says Mudmore. Um uh, I think Boromir's throwing the metaphor back into Aragorn's face, essentially. Okay, Mr. Broken Sword. What use are you? Remember what Aragorn said uh, when he drew the sword for Sam? Not much use, is it, Sam? Right? Boromir seems to be saying the same thing. Right? Not much use, are you, Mr. Broken Sword? Right? Um, yeah. Show me. Sh- explain to me why a dude who is metaphorically represented by a broken sword is going to be any good at all, any use at all. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Enoch Arden is saying, it seems like he was hoping for someone who was powerful enough to fight Sauron directly, like Elendil did. Instead, he gets lean-faced Strider. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Certainly, in a garden, I would say that is the contrast that Boromir is very aware of. Remember, remember again Frodo's first foot in the mouth experience earlier on in the council. Remember that moment when Frodo was like, "Wow, you were there with Gilgalad." I thought the fall of Gilgalad was a, you know, was long ago, right? We've gotten this like. Elrond, that guy, right there, is one of those ancient heroes. He was on Mount Doom when Sauron was cast down. He saw the sword broken. He watched Isildur. He was peers with Elendil himself, right? That's going to mean a lot to Boromir. So here's Elrond, establishing his credentials, not only as eyewitness, but as big deal, right? And now, so first there's Gilgalad's junior assistant, still here, Right? The guy who, 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 like, totally, you know, uh, uh, well, who is at least, the, you know, the, <laughs> he was the senior assistant of Gilgalad, right, in the Battle of Daggerlad. So, anyway, we've got Gilgalad's representative here, and now what do we have? 
the broken sword, the sword of Elendil, right? So here's Elendil's junior assistant or his representative, right? We've got the last alliance, uh, you know, showing up, right? Showing up at the council here. And Frodo is super impressed at the significance of, um, of like Elrond's person. And then by contrast, here's this lean faced, scruffy looking guy who just tossed a broken sword on the table. Right. Um, and didn't introduce himself or make any claims. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, he doesn't look the part. Boromir is having a reaction, in part. Boromir is having a reaction, which is almost opposite to the reaction Frodo had to Elrond earlier on, right? You know, instead of having one of those, like, OMG fanboy moments, right, that Frodo is having, he's having the opposite reaction, right? I think we must remember, as several of you have been pointing out, we can't lose sight of the fact that Boromir is saying these things in the immediate context of having been hit with ring-inspired emotions for the first time. I think that glint as he's gazing at the golden thing makes that really clear. Um... Um, oh, Trifle, I hadn't thought of that. Trifle says Frodo's outburst about ring ownership is an interesting comparison to his outburst about Elrond when you compare it. Frodo does seem to take Strider as a Sildur's heir at about the same level as he takes Elrond's identity, right? Um, yes. Holy cow! You're the heir of a Sildur? Man, right? Then it belongs to you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... That Boromir might be a little bit on his dignity here, right? Might be inclined to see Aragorn as a less than wholly inspiring option. As the, I mean, if the point ultimately of this vision, again, the only imperative thing it was, it, it said, right? The only command they were given was to seek for the sword that was broken. And that quest has led to this dude. Right? Um, You're the message. You're what Gondor was being told about. Um, He would, he could be forgiven for thinking or saying that under any circumstances. Right? I think. But that he should say it now when the desire for the ring is still hot in his mind, I think is not surprising at any way. In any way. Um, Uh, yes, so Mad Violinist says, uh, uh, am I thinking that Boromir's misunderstanding of doom, that is, that it's the doom of Minas Tirith, is related to his rationalization about the ring, that since Minas Tirith is doomed, he will need to take the ring to save it? I th- yes. I, do I think that's all that's in his mind? No. But do I think that that's kind of a factor here? Yeah, I do. I do. Um... 
I think that the desire to take the ring himself uh, and wield the power of the enemy against him is going to be informed by, like, it's going to be supported by a rationalization that says, look, we're doomed if we don't, right? The only chance we have, we have no chance of winning this war. Well, the only chance that we have would be wielding the ring, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, so exactly, it would be a perfectly good motive twisted by the desire for the ring. Mad violinist. Yeah, exactly. Do I think that's dominant? Do I think he's really thinking through that yet? No, I don't think he has anything like the data to do this. He doesn't yet understand that desire for the ring is bad. He doesn't yet understand that he should resist this desire. Um, He doesn't yet understand that there's any reason to think it would be a bad idea to use the power of the enemy against himself, right? He has yet to learn those things. Um, I don't think this is a full rationalization here, but do I think we can see it already acting to some extent? Yeah, I do. I, I think that that's, I think this is a very natural thing for him to think anyway. I think it's a natural ref- reflection of the kind of provincialness that we've seen. I think he's got the doom of Minas Tirith on his mind, and I think that it's one of those things that, that is that this shows, that he has had this on his mind, uh, and does even on one level already believe that Minas Tirith is doomed, um, and that its doom is at hand, and has come at last. Um, but yes, I also do think that another factor there is, or rather, Chris, I'd say it this way. If we imagine Boromir feeling this sudden desire for the ring and then ask if, according to the theory we were articulating earlier tonight, the response of the host, right, the host mind, when the ring injects these emotions into the host's mind, if, as we see or as we were speculating, the response of the host tends to be rationalization to sort of deal with and incorporate those feelings, right? This makes perfect sense as a way that it would begin to rationalize itself now. Um, And Tillian says a fear-based reaction sounds like it comes from the ring. It could very well. Um, Fear could be one of the things gripping, not only desire, but fear also could be one of the things that um, is that the ring is kind of hitting him with, right? Um, yeah. Now, we are getting far ahead of ourselves, I know. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, I think it's worth sort of speculating here. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, no, Mark, we never have seen the ring in, induce emotions in anyone other than the bearer. No. Um, uh, yes. Crap. We have. We did. Bilbo. With Bilbo. Smeagol while Diegel's got it. Trifle. Wonderful answer. Yes. We know that the desire for the ring is not restricted to the one who's physically holding it. Smeagol shows that clearly enough, right? It is certainly able to afflict somebody else with desire, right? And I certainly agree, Mike, that uh, um, uh, that Smeagol certainly rolled a poor saving throw uh, in his uh, wisdom uh, check there. But um, but absolutely, we have plenty of evidence uh, uh, for that. Conceivably, Isildur standing over Sauron's body, possibly, yes. Um, 
Simon, yeah, I think with Goadriel, we're going to see something similar as well. Um, but uh, yeah, and I was going to, as I said, I think that Bilbo's request to see the ring also suggests, uh, in the Hall of Fire, I mean, suggests an influence of the ring on him. Um, um, yeah, so so no, I, I, I definitely think that uh, we have plenty of reason to believe. But have we seen it? It was spoken of before. Um, we saw it, I think, briefly in Bilbo, but I don't think that um, we are going to... I think this is one of the first times we've seen it this directly. We've seen it this... Uh, we've sat and watched it act on someone like this. That glint in his eyes as he gazes at the golden thing is what I'm talking about, right? That I don't think we've ever seen before. Um, but we have plenty of reason to think that it does happen, right? So we shouldn't, shouldn't be shocked or shouldn't resist, I think, the conclusion that that's in fact what's happening. I don't think we have any reason to resist that. Um, good. I agree, Trifle, with both your statement that we're getting ahead of ourselves, but also with your statement, I am also very skeptical that the ring affects people over long distances. Um, I think that when you're talking about people like Denethor or Saruman, I think it is, of course, very possible for people to experience desire that is not a direct inspiration of the ring. Uh, you don't have to have the ring sending you emotions in order for you to desire power, right? Um, so, anyway. Um, okay, cool. Um, yes, I do think we get a hint in Gandalf's refusal to touch it. Yes, don't give the ring to me! Yes, exactly. I, I do think um, we do get a hint of it there. Um, yes. Okay. Um Interesting. Arden Crayon says perhaps even a hint when Strider says he could take the ring if he wanted it. Um, yes, if I were after the ring, I could have it now. Is he there giving voice to a feeling that he has, even though he's fighting that feeling, right? Uh, is there a sense in which he is like allowing that to be dramatized almost, right? Um, in which Tolkien is hinting to us the fact that that he was uh, um, that he experienced that desire right sure absolutely absolutely um, yep yep anyway okay tune in next time to hear Aragorn's response right we're gonna have to save that for next week um I would say we did half a slide today, but we totally spent some time, and Matt DeForest, it's all your fault, talking about the previous slide again at the beginning this time. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but that was good. And set up the uh, reuse of the metaphor of a broken sword by, uh, uh, by Boromir there. So, okay. Questions I want to ask you to be thinking about for next time. What is the tone of Aragorn's response? How chippy is Aragorn's response, if you see what I mean? Is Aragorn peeved? Is he... Um, how much strut is there in Aragorn's response? Is he rising to... I mean, is, is, is this an emotional response? Um, 
is there even this a similar kind of element to Boromir's? Like, you know, think not that the glory of Gondor is, you know, and, and all its pride and dignity forgotten, right? Um, is 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 Aragorn feeling the same kind of thing, right? Anyway, uh, so think about that, right? Uh, you know, think about this um, this whole speech. Not only the speech that he's about to give, but we're going to get another speech from him afterwards, right? Well, okay, we're not going to get to that one next week, I don't think, because there's a poem in between. So uh, anyway, yeah, so exactly. Some homework for the homebound there. Um, uh, uh, Think about that and how we would think about that question that we were asking about Aragorn's previous speech. What's his tone of voice, right? What can we get? How do we we contextualize his words here? Um, Okay. But we shall resume there next week. Um, uh, so uh, uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, I'm going to switch over uh, to um, uh, uh, to Twitch only. Now I'm going to turn off the Twitter stream. Uh, thanks, everybody, for... Um, um, uh, for joining our, our discussion, stick around for our field trip because we're about to go to a new place tonight. Having finished the Arid Lewin last week, we're going to bring our field trip in a completely different direction tonight. Uh, so thanks, everybody. All right. There we go. Okay. Good evening. All right. Good evening. Okay, let us head out. Welcome back, Valori. You said you've had uh, a whole bunch of horrible allergies at your house. Yeah, I lost my voice. Uh, Yeah, that's because it's so warm. I I usually lose my voice around late April, but because it was Uh been so warm lately, everything bloomed early. So, yeah. Yeah. Normally, it'd be going out around the time I'm at RavenCon and about to do a reading. So. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, usually it's got a it's a, it it should pick a more inconvenient moment <laughs> than this. Uh, oh, I missed you guys for two weeks, though. Absolutely, absolutely. It's good to be back. Now we finished Thorns Hall. Um, okay. Uh, but that was all we did was finish Thorns Hall. Yeah. Oh, I see we're lagging again. My horse is roller skating down the stairs here. It is It is a full server tonight. Yeah. Oh, and there's an empty horse following me. Um, to me, it just looks like you have horse pants and you're skating along. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now my question is, where are we going? So there are two choices. About, yeah. yeah. Talked about two options here. One option would be to move on to an area that we haven't done yet, which is the Misty Mountains. We did Rivendell. Of course, the yes. whole uh, you know, Rivendell and the rest of uh, um, Trollshaws. Yep. Um, we could, so we could go back over in that direction and go up into the mountains. Or we could go back to Angmar uh, because we had been doing Angmar and we kind of broke Angmar off when we got to a, we were doing Angmar while we were in a place where there was no text to correlate with. And then we got to Rivendell, so we went back to and did the Trollshaws, is I think what happened. Um, yes. Or maybe, yeah, something like that. Anyway, um, the um, 
But anyway, the point is we broke it off in the middle. So we could go back to Angmar and finish that, or we could go and do the Misty Mountains and then um, maybe see where we are. And whether that. we have to go through that wall in Angmar. Right. Yes. And I think I'm prepared to, I did check beforehand to make sure that oh. Narnian on this server had, was prepared to make it past the boundary there in the middle of, uh, of Angmar and, 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 and he is, so we could, we could go there. Um, uh, yeah, I might not be able to, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, it's been so long. I'm quite sure. What do, uh, what do people think? Um, so folks who are listening, do you guys want, uh, would you rather go to, uh, to, would you rather go to Minas Tirith? I almost said, not quite yet. Would you rather go to, uh, uh, to the Misty Mountains or would you rather go back to Angmar? Thoughts? Yeah, this one I have not done that. I could not go into Angmar beyond the, the words on this. Oh, hang on a second. I'm having issues here. Hang on a second. Okay. Hmm. Hang on a second. I just lost my... Having an audio issue here. Just a second. And going back to my fallback position here. Okay. Oh, Edith says we can now be ported past that boundary in Angmar. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a nice change. If so, we have someone who can port us through, that would yeah. ideal. Yeah. Okay. Um, I agree we will be in Rivenel for a while, Fourth Dauntless. Um, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I mean, Scudo, exactly. I mean, it's really not going to be until we leave Rivendell and head to Eregion that we're going to have more text from the... Um, you know, more, uh, more area from the text to explore. <laughs> oh boy. So, yeah. We're on Arkenstone tonight. Yeah. Uh, Edith. Yep. Um, so, okay. Fourth thought says, let's save Misty mountains. We are going to be in Rivendell for quite some time. So mm-hmm. we, to be honest, can probably do both. Um, let's go back to Angmar because I hate breaking things off in the middle and not finishing them. So, Okay. It will appeal to my inner completionist to go back and do Angmar before we begin another area. Um, the reason we went to Arid Luin instead of going back and finishing, um, uh, instead of going back and finishing Angmar, is that originally had been thinking that the whole like Kellandim and the westward bound elf area is something we were kind of waiting to get to Rivendell to do, um, mm-hmm. thinking about the whole elf thing, right? Um, yeah. But, uh, okay, so let's, let's see, need? so how to get there. Um, we would need someone to port us over to the other one. Yes. Uh, I think, let's see. What is it the... depends on which part of Angmar you want to go to. 
the new stuff is on this side of the wall, so you don't have to be able to cross it to be able to see the Let's start at Algair, and then, Valori, we can port you if we need to. Okay. So let's see, how do I get to Algair best from here? I could go to Esteldine? Um, yes. Can I get there from Esteldine? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So let's go to There's just no fast travel there. Right. I have to, I have to, I have to take the slow that, road. That, that sounds familiar. Yep. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Gosh, I haven't been... It's been forever since we've been in the North Downs. I know. I'm going to have to see what I remember of Rudauer and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of... I want to start at Ogaier because I, I want to... Um, uh, start there because yeah. it's been so long and you know and ride through to where we left off how can i be of service to get some kind of sense okay good i thought i would have that open on this server and i do yeah. oh do we want to check out that one dwarf encampment now that we know dwarf architecture <laughs> oh in uh in in angmar yeah yeah we already went there this... i think didn't we but we could stop in yeah but we didn't know whether it was long. Exactly. Or... Right now we know. Yeah. Now, now that we've learned so much about dwarven architectural history, <laughs> it's a good call. Yeah. See, like I said, better to kind of ride through it from the beginning. Uh, mm. We'll have a different context on things here. Okay. As I recall, weren't we in the middle of the the area with the undead? Is that where we left off? I believe so. I think that's where we were. The uh, horse glitched out. <laughs> yeah, I'm having all kinds of... I've never had a boss bot horse glitched out that bad on me before. Yeah, this is... Uh, it's wow. Just he not... went up against a tree and couldn't move. Really? Yes, I have not had that happen. He got that stuck? Happened once. Yeah, he actually got stuck instead of following the track. Wow. The trees are new. Oh, oh, Mike, horse is getting confused. Okay, oh, there, he found the right way. <laughs> yeah, he, he stopped and turned in three different directions before he remembered which direction the path was in there. I think all yeah. these horses are mildly concussed. Yeah, the stable master here at uh, Esteldine does not seem to have his horses trained real well for the, for the route. Typical rangers keep needing our help for everything. Can't even do a dang thing for themselves. Yeah. guess not yeah okay. i've had one go my friend had a horse like back in their the beta days they had one go right off the bridge and missed the bridge at uh Columbin. oh it just like fell into the it river just, it just fell in the river just totally <laughs> missed the bridge. i was back back during the yeah. that's awesome that's awesome i love it yeah it was kind of it was kind of awesome but it was at the same time it's just kind of like i paid for this right right yeah well you know Right. Well, remember, that was back when it was really hard to get a couple of bucks and a stable ride was considered a luxury. Right, exactly. Exactly, right. You pony up all this money for... Hey, is this new? Yes. This is a tunnel. This didn't used to be a tunnel. What? This used to be a gorge. 
And now it's a tunnel. I have to see the tunnel. Where's the tunnel? I ported because I was a hunter. The tunnel is leading right into the, uh, uh, whatever they're called. The Earthkin. Earthkin. Earth, Earthkin, yeah. Um, wow, that was a tunnel. That's a tunnel. Wow. Yeah. What happened? Intriguing. Okay, well, there we go. Okay, I'm back. So here's Ram Duath. Um, yeah, Ram Duath is most of the stuff that Scenario uh, overhauled when he did his work on it. Oh. Intriguing. Huh. So, I think the... That's really interesting, because changing that to a tunnel, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any gameplay-related reason to do that. Um, but there is a kind of, like, it does shift the kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of like symbolic or metaphorical weight of that passage, right? When you're mm. not just going over a pass in the mountains, but passing through a tunnel as if, uh, as if it's, um, you know, like entering a, 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 a different world. Like it's more sort of portal-like, if you know what I mean. It also implies that it's man-made, not a natural thing. Unless there was water getting, right. of course. Right, um, Potentially. It also implies that it could be hidden. That's why the good people are here and the evil peoples haven't found as much of it yet. Right, right. As if we're, we're the place where we're going is some kind of hidden valley here it's in It's defensible. Yes. Yeah. Though speaking of defensible, so I see what you mean... Uh, Druid's fire when you were saying last week that the ruins are gone. Mm-hmm. No ruins. Oh. It's just a natural valley now. No evidence. I see no architectural evidence of any kind that anyone else used to ever be here. Burt down, fell over, sank into the swamp. Absolutely. <laughs> the second castle. <laughs> right. So this... Um, this then again in that same kind of idea that same kind of uh you know hidden valley concept uh-huh. Valori. um the lack of ruins here also suggests that this is not a you know a a camp of barbarians sort of you know squatting in the ruins of a a, a greater lost civilization right uh-huh. this is just the secret valley of these hidden peoples you know yes yeah, so it it doesn't imply a, a, a race of people diminished, just a race of people yes. that never change. Right. And uh, disconnected from oh, that Oh, stuff back here. Hmm, where? There's stuff uh, behind the chieftain. Behind the chieftain? Behind the chieftain. There's like a big cave and stuff here. Whoa. Didn't that used to be a blank wall? Yes, it did. Wow. Now he's actually turning his back on stuff. Yeah. This whole tent thing didn't used to be here. Yeah. He was not in a tent. No. Nope. He was in the open air. Yeah. In fact, well, like, wasn't he? I mean, all of yeah, these, yeah. like, huge pillars and everything, like, this looking like a hall is new. I seem to That's remember nice him just tent. standing on a platform in the field. Yeah. Under the naked sky. Now we got this little parkour tournament place over here. Now, hang on. I haven't gotten to the place. I was just looking at the... I was, I was like, as we pass beneath these posts, and I'm like, wait a second. These posts weren't here. Okay. These are carved posts. These aren't... Yeah. Tri- yeah. 
there's a cave? Yeah, kind of. Well, at least there's rocks. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting stuck. Cool. I'm glad we went back. Yeah. Wonder Just what else wait till you see the Ram off. You'll be mine. What? Wanna see Ram Droth? Okay. Alright, wow. Okay, so I... One of the effects, of course, of creating this area back here is now to enable us to really appreciate this big, huge, enormous tent that they've made for the to cover the chief's area. Look how tiny yeah. his little platform is beneath this enormous hall. Yeah, I agree, Katriana. I don't even know how many, like, Aurochs had to die to make that tent. Over how many, you know, decades. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's really quite... The feat of engineering this tent, this or, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, look at the little golden uh, caps up in the top where the smoke goes out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very cool. I like that. So I mean, it suggests a grand hall, but it also is, but it still you know sort of stays within the. You know, the idiom, right, of uh, of these folks. Yeah. There's a trough here for something. Let's see. See, I'm just looking Big enough the... to hold his pride. Yeah, exactly. And very looking little inside furniture. inside the tents, seeing <laughs> if there's any, still not too much furniture. Yeah, you still get the feeling the little tents are warmer. Yeah. Oh, that's what the trough's for. Got it. With the aurochs? Yeah. Yeah. Oops, oh, sorry. Sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt the sleep of the uh, natives here. Kind of rude, just tromping right through their bedroom. Yeah. Um, I wonder what's in here! Come, come, come. Yeah. Sorry, tourists! Yeah, apologies. Yeah, no wonder they don't trust outsiders. Okay. Another so. bloody tourist. Back here into the crafting area. Herds of arcs. More of these ginormous tents. Yeah. We don't have the forge just standing outside anymore. Or the stove, yeah. And this... Is this the trough that you were talking about? The yeah, kind of a, trough? Yeah, it's an arc trough. Yeah. You should think. Still have Kuranir hiding in this tent? Yep, yeah, he's there still there is. telling me to get that rock. Right. I think he's still there telling me to go on and find out what happened to Goladir's people. <laughs> Alright. Let's Ooh. Look at those towers. Ah, oh, cool. That's different. Isn't that different? That is Those towers weren't different. there before. At least I don't think they looked like that. They were so they're hey, so cool. Hey, was this path here? Uh, no. New path. New path. Oh, new path up to the uh, red circle. Point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot this was up here because I pretty, you know, almost never died when I came here. So, you know. The towers are not new. Towers are not new? No. I'm just appreciating the. Yes, you can. Uh, but the, if you look toward the cleft where it's oranger, yeah. uh, 
between the cleft and the towers right in front of us, there is actually a new hillside that leads down. You can look over in Loch Balcor, the undead. Cool. I, I, I just, maybe I, maybe we're just appreciating, like, you know, the fires and stuff we can see from the hill. Well, and also, again, those towers are... So, I mean, it's a combination of two things. One, the mere fact that every time I, you know, see something again after not looking at it for a week or two, it's like I've never seen it before. But secondly, and paradoxically, because of the experience we've had in seeing the things that we've been talking about in Arid Lewin and thinking about the connection between this architecture and that, or the disjunction between this architecture and that, um, is interesting. That, I think, is Karn Doom up on the hill, isn't it? Nope. No. Uh, it's What's over that? the next hill. Yeah. Okay. Oh, right. No, that's... It's over the next hill. Okay. It's pretty well covered up by, by hills and mountains. Okay. I love the sky here. I've always loved the sky here. Yeah. What's okay. causing that, I wonder? I mean... Well, it's that force field. Remember, it's got the glowing lines that just sort of... It looks like a force field. <laughs> it does look like a force field. Okay, I should probably mount up here. But I'm not going to Warsteed yet. Just bear in mind, you do have lobbies with you. I was just going to bring that up as we cross this rise. How are we for... How many people need to be, like, very carefully protected? Valoria, you're 50, so you're on level here. Yeah, Dallin... We've got a level is already 30. We've got somebody... <laughs> uh, level 6. Yeah, that's not going to take long. Yeah. Uh, whew. That's more a question of when. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we've got a Bjorning, who is unclickable now. Uh... 67, level 100, there we go. Level 68. I'm a mere level 30. You're you're level 30 there, okay. Oh, wait, there we go. Level 50. Uh, Ponton says the the tent for Cranog, the chieftain, has always been there. No, has it? No, has it? Uh Uh-huh. I don't believe you. The tent behind it? I don't believe you. Of course, again, like I can never underrate my own obliviousness, but okay. Thought for sure we would have run a muck long before then. All right, let's stick to the road. So, those of you who are high level, try to be a little proactive in killing the mobs alongside the road, and those of you who are <laughs> low level, try to stick to the road. Again, the level six guy. Really not sure how long we're going to be able to keep you alive. They're, they're just kiting towards him at this point. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you keep riding, uh, you generally are going to be okay. But we're going to be stopping to look at things with some nope. regularity. So, all right, here's File Crow. Oh, Graham's right. disappearing. <laughs> okay, just everything just disappeared for a second. Had a little blackout moment. Okay, so I remember those big spiky things in the big middle of nowhere. Check. Okay, and those tower fragments, right? Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Edith the, says and that the, the level six is going to aggro the greenery here. Yeah, it's so true. I'm surprised the Lebethron branches aren't 
galloping towards her. Um, okay. Yeah, and this is the one that has the peculiar, it had the peculiar metal um, accents on it. Yeah. The really dark black metal that we've only seen in yeah. uh, among yeah. black and Numenorean stuff. Yeah, now as I recall, we were, when we were here, we were going to, we were finding three different historical strata, right? We were finding evidence of the new Angmarim. Yeah. The older hillmen who were corrupted into the service of Angmar. Yeah. And the speculative presence of an intermediate strata after the fall of Angmar in 1974. No, that's the fall of Fornos, but not too long after was the fall of Angmar. Um, So, like a thousand years ago, Angmar fell, and so the people of the area were freed from the domination of the Witch King and the corruption of that kingdom. Um, And then we were... So we were speculating that they had established a culture of their own, which has since been lately begun to be re-corrupted by the new wave of the Angmarim uh, that have been sent up here into the north. That, as I recall, was the architectural theory we were uh, working out Uh here. And in the undead area, which we are not in. So, But now I'm trying to remember where these towers with this gray stone and the walls and everything fit in there. I think this was... The old Angmar? I don't remember. I do remember there was a connection between Gondor and old Angmar. It was yeah. like taking taking stuff that we'd seen in Esteldin and Gondor and sort of perverted it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, because of the 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 old mm-hmm. Dunedain connection. Yeah, um sorry, not Gondor, um uh, the other one, uh, even the stuff we saw in the Numina. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. Which um, we can assume is, is mimicking Gondor. Um, right, right. All right, but, okay. Yeah. I'm going to keep my eyes the, open the, here. The minimalist, bricky stuff that we're seeing here is the newer one. Maybe. Well, where we were mostly speculating about the newer one was... Mm-hmm when we were in the residential area up in this city up here to the north. That's right. The half half timber houses, the sort of Tudor looking things. Yeah. And, and we saw like the, the, the evil Bree land esque buildings. Right. And that was the ideas there, as you can see the corrupted, because the hillmen were related to the Bree landers and, Ooh, okay. Now this is not new. These, Oh, they're just popping out of nowhere. Yeah, these guys were here before, and that's an, that's the entrance to an orc camp, right? Is oh, that what yeah. called? An orc cave? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And we got... Oh, right, look at everybody coming running. Um, okay. Well, do we have, like, a level 100 hunter? That's really handy. Yes. <laughs> that's very handy. Um, yes, it is. Thank you. 
Okay. So, yeah, Donovile, right? That's the city that we were looking at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, there's that, like, uh, there's the, like, Tudor-style wooden buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hang on, which which way am I turning here? Either way, really, but... I think it goes around the lake and goes back. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, right, so this... These stone walls with the the black crowns around the top, the you know the, the where the walls look like they all have individual oh, yeah, iron yeah. crowns, right? That's old Angmar. Mm-hmm. That's old Angmar. The houses are oh. yeah. reminiscent of. Hang on a second. Let me dismount and get my links and set my links on is it on aggressive uh what do i have it on yeah i have it on aggressive mode okay and uh no i don't want it on assist i guess it's okay anyway let's see if my links can help a little bit um Anyway, so yeah, these uh, these wooden buildings, mm-hmm. uh, these wooden buildings were the remnants of like the original, or at least a, a sort of a memory of the um, the original Hillman culture before being corrupted by Old Angmar. Yeah, you can but see that, how they're all yeah. look like they're about to fall apart. Right, yeah, but this city as a whole, where we see the two of them integrated, is is uh, sort of a, a throwback to, you know, the Hillmen um, constructing this city under the influence of Angmar. Yeah, so that, that Tudor-style building, um, uh, Veronica, is um, just like we see in Brie. Right, so it seems to be the kind of culture, uh, you know, uh, style that is uh, associated with these mm-hmm. people. Since I like how you can see that cultural echo between the Brelanders and the um, the Hillmen up here in Angmar. Um, it does make me wonder. Um, I know this is jumping ahead, but when we get to like you know passages about how the Shire gets overrun with all these, you know, mm-hmm. new boxy buildings put mm-hmm. up. They, you think they'd look like this? I wonder. This is what... Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I think they would be mostly just like, these are too pretty. I think that the... Okay, hang on. So let's um, let's head back out. We already been were through this town once. We don't have to see everything. I just wanted to sort of recalibrate my architectural sense here as we're going through <laughs> and trying to get an understanding of Angmar and how it's working. And if we're lucky, everything won't have reset all the way out the door, but maybe it has. Maybe just the front guards. Yeah, not quite yet. There we go. Nope. Probably just waiting until you're right there. Yeah, (laughs) respawn. Yes. Okay, good. Um... All right. 
Yeah, let's stay on foot. It'll make it easier for people to fight off the mobs. Okay, let's head back over to towards Malumhad. Uh, let's see, well, it's getting late. Um, let's head back to that dwarf settlement. We'll make that our destination here. Okay. And then we will have reminded ourselves of most of the things. Um, we get we get on the open road. It's probably better to try uh, to ride over there. Yeah. Oh right, you're yeah, right. It's probably better to ride to stay ahead of stuff. Okay, let's mount up here, I guess. And I want to head where I want to head. Okay, I got to know where I want to head. We'll stick to the road. Okay. How much of the landscape around here has been changed? Most of it looks pretty similar to what I remember, the dead trees. The mountain to our left. I'm seeing more ochre colors and stuff, but that might be the type of light we're in and the sky we're in. Right, right, it's possible. Yeah, Aranas says that brick buildings are described in the, sh- in the, sc- in the scouring of the Shire, which is true. Brick buildings, gotcha. Um, and um, and anyway, again, those even the buildings that we saw back there in Donovan were too attractive. Um, yeah, you know, there's no so, attention to aesthetics at all in the. Uh, so it, it would have looked like an industrial revolution, you know, t- uh, dormitory for workers. Yeah, like exactly. from, from Derbyshire. Pure utilitarian, no. No aesthetic value at all. Okay. Boy, there is a lot of lag today. Just a bit. On the whole, I mean, I... There we go. The graphics just resolved into the road again. Um... (laughs) Uh, resolved into a do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Stop pretending to be somebody from Amber. Yeah. So the um, the what was I saying? I'm I'm delighted to. I'm, I do, do I take it? Am I right in thinking that the extreme lag is due to the like play for free special that Lotro has had running now for a little while? It's very likely, on. considering there's three times as many players on a server at any given time than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been on threads and people are talking about what their favorite things are to do, and I still see a Lord of the Ring pop up. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Here, let's head up here for a minute. Check it out this camp. It is a nice retreat. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. And this is what is And Standing Stone was one of the first game companies to do something like this. Yeah. Okay, checking out the camp up here. Um, so yeah, anyway, no, I, I'm I'm delighted that Standing Stone is doing that. I think that's awesome, and uh, I hope lots of people are availing themselves of the opportunity to. Wow, this looks very different. Yep. Yep. Oh dang. 
I don't remember this rock garden at all. Or this little, was this thing here? This little building? Little Zen garden. <laughs> yeah, it does look like a little Zen garden around here. Huh. So this little canopy thing, this little whatever it is. Looks like a stable. Yeah, it does look like a stable. Was that here? Nope. These buildings were never here. Nope. And these are all bad guys, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. We're actually taking uh, the bad guy infested way through here. They're, they actually built a tunnel uh, from the north to the south that doesn't have any right. oh, wow. much in it. This was not a town. This was a goblin camp. Yeah. Oh, I remember the bonfire over here. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And there's the run? goblins. Yeah, this part is the part where I ran as fast as I could with like 500 enemies kiting behind me. Right, and there's that area where you like jump down off the cliff into it from above after you get the heart of the stone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, was, this, was the smoke always this pink? Mm, I think they had different colors depending Those on which really fire you were. really pink flames. Yeah, see, we're back here at Ramchuath. Yeah. Huh. But this is lovely. This is a nice little town. So, here we see very... like a Diwali. Up here, <laughs> we see very little direct evidence of old Angmarim influence. No, no. I think we can around the corner. Of course, now this is when we're headed up to the statues. Yeah, we're headed to the statue in the orc encampment, hence all the new post holes. Right, yeah, and also all of these palisades and things are new. Built by the new Angmarim and the goblins. Yeah. And there's the statue. Great. Oh. That's one of them. Yeah. Oh, and one of those spiky things. But that's all this area, these boulders and bushes are much cooler. Was, wasn't this just black rock? Uh, I don't recall I don't these little fiddly bits on the so side. Much green. There's way more green, isn't there? Actually, I'm looking at the statue. All the fiddly bits that they put around the statue are new. Memory serves. If you go through this little archway here, you can see what I'm talking about. Where is the statue? Over here? This archway? Mm -hmm. Yes. You turn around it and you can see the statue, but now it's got like an alcove behind it. Something. Come on, we're all standing. Okay, hang on. Standing in the wrong archway. Um, yeah, you got to go through the archways and then go this way and then turn around. The man-made right. archway. <laughs> oh, yeah, wow. Okay, wham. Okay, now come here where I'm, and then, yeah, look up. No, stand where I am and turn around. Okay. Turn around, look up. Turning around, turning around. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's uh, different. Sure is. That looks very much more sort of shrine-like, right? Yeah, I could see demonic souls imprisoned in this. Yeah. 
for yeah. sure. And notice the hints to the big black sort of daggery things we saw in the Numinos. Yeah. And okay. The big fish so, hook sort of looking thing. So the uh, yeah, no, I love it. I love that. So this is this has solved a problem that I remember having before, which is trying to explain these spiky things, right? Which we see all over randomly in the landscape, like this, you know, spike thing just standing up in the middle of nowhere, right? But if we take this to, like, if those things are, if the spiky things are framing mechanisms for demonic shrines of this kind. Like artistic buttresses kind of thing. Exactly. That makes sense. Then that suggests that all of the places where we see the random spiky things standing up by themselves are remnants, right? Where it's... Gotcha. Uh, Evil uh, buttresses. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Leftover buttresses that have since lost their statues or whatever. Um, what's... What are the circles at the bottom for? Yeah. I mean, they look it doesn't like seem wheels. to be anything on them. Like the wheels on the plinth go round and round is like what it looks like. But the demon in statue goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh no, we've got them on the side too, so it only go around in circles. Yeah, yeah, no, it's decorative. I know, but it's odd. The colors are too cheerful. Hmm. Well, and speaking of cheerful, am I right in thinking that a lot of these trees and things are new? Were, were there always trees in here? Yes. There were. Okay. Just wait till you around the corner up here. Wait, which corner? Going to the south, rounding back to where the Earthkin camp is. Uh, oh, yes. That's a lot of what he over... It's pretty. All right. Okay, so let's head back over this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah there is a lot. The there, are, there are a lot more boulders. I mean, there I were remember. some pine trees here before, but and now I there's think, just a lot Isn't the ground more. a different color? Like, I just don't remember mm-hmm. being it's, in the middle yeah. of like the whole thing is green. Like, green is like the dominant color of this landscape. And <gasps> Ooh, you can see the houses up on the hill. Whoa! We're seeing a lot more of these houses. Yeah. More evidence of the this like the old and sort of undisturbed culture of the hillmen, but here, okay, right, we've got the goblin war machines. Mm-hmm. What? But now we've got this huge uh, gateway. Where on uh, earth? Look, you could hear the buttresses we? again. It's framing the pathway. Yes. Did this place exist? No. Whoa. Like you said, we're seeing new purpose for these buttresses that we yeah. haven't seen. Now they, like, they sometimes are flanking those statues and sometimes... They frame utter peril. Yeah. We're getting remnants of Karn Doom here. Yeah. I'm just looking at the hanging lamp. These ramps are cool. Yeah. And accessible. Yeah, exactly. It's a wheelchair accessible Angmarim town. 
Well, also War Machine accessible. Well, that's also true. And see, look, here's the spiky bits. Oh, what that creepy haunted mansion glow. Around this enormous shrine. Wow. I, I don't remember this. this. Was this from the instance later on when we were retrieving that guy's daughter? It was, did they have something like this that was like sunk in the ground, or is this new? That was Goldier? the fountain in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Goladir's daughter, Lorne. Yeah, but this isn't the same place. It's no. but it did it have something that was like this? Mm -hmm. Look at okay, that place good. across the way. That's amazing! Holy cow! Look at that it's thing. A... It's like a little miniature Orthanc. It's kind of cute. It's got like. Ninja throwing star all over. Shuriken. Yeah. Shuriken. Arigato. Hang on a second. Where are we? Not where I think what? we are. This is reminding me of the... I've forgotten the name of it. This one up here. What is it called? Bile Bolglach. This one uh, north of the Malin had on the, on the, like the boundary line. The place where you drop yeah. dead. If you take the road up Imlad Balkor? Oh, yeah, 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 that, yeah. One. that one. It's reminding me of... I keep thinking I'm over there. Yeah, that's right. Well, I keep getting vibes of Karndoom and thinking, oh, my, do I have all my keys? <laughs> we got these little phylactery factories. Yeah. All right, hang on, I gotta go up that other ramp. I gotta go across to that... Uh, to to Mini Orthanc over there. Okie dokie. You said this, boss. Oh man, tell me I can't get there. I can't get there. Can I open the doors? Is it quest? No. Is it quest related? No, I can't get there. No, but it looks so cool. Darn it! Oh, they're not even. It's not even like you have to take this quest. It's just not accessible. No, that's horrible. It taunts it us with its stern coolness. letter to scenario saying, what did you do? What is up with that? Uh. Okay, so. All right. Theory. Hi. The spiky things are... All right. So, in fact, here we can see the theory borne out right here. Uh, item number one. The spiky buttress on the banister of this ramp. This is ancient, clearly, right? This is part of the old Angmarim architecture mm -hmm. that we see in the ramps and the walls, even though the houses themselves are Hillman houses. Yes. But this is a clear indication, like a clear remnant of the old Angmarim style. So if we look yeah. at the big spiky tower that we can't get to, mm -hmm. we can see that the spikes are of a, a very similar kind and structure, but these are not ancient. They don't look ancient. Okay. Okay. If I could see it even closer, that would be nice. I'm trying to decide if that tower is new. 
But there are places, I remember one of the things that we were noticing before is that there were places where we could see um, some of these shrine-like places which are definitely new, which are definitely um, new Angmar constructions, which are yes. like a revival, therefore, of the old structure. So presumably those, the buttress, the buttress things, right? The pointy mm-hmm. buttresses are the old style, like those old statues are clearly ancient. Um, exactly. But... And yeah, you're right. Now that I'm looking at it more closely from up here, Katriana, from across the way, I thought this was new. But you're right. I think there is rust on the tower. I think looking at the base of the tower, I think it's old. And that looks like it's kind of encrusted with green around the top. Oh, yeah. But it would sure be nice to be able to get closer to that. Check out this door frame. The door frame is with a head. It's got like a turtle head or like a demon head. What is that? Yeah. But the way that there's the triangle thing up above it makes it look like the head is... It makes it look turtle-like, like the head is emerging from a shell. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe it's, it's supposed to, or, maybe yeah. it's supposed to, like, what are those giant turtles down in the plane called? Uh, the Iron Scales? Ooh. Yeah. Well there's, well, there's the big evil turtle under a Numinos. Right. Oh, there's that turtle. Good grief. Yeah. With all the little wee turtles. But I'd almost forgotten. I'd almost managed to block out the memory of that turtle. Norman. Save me yeah. from the wee turtles. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> died so many times since it wasn't even funny but um (laughs) i remember when we did that in Mythgard monday i'm pretty sure i completed that instance posthumously but um i think most of us did yeah yeah that one minstrel just kept going (laughs) anyway okay all right well i i want to i want to find more now it is very late we can't yeah. re-see all of Angmar in one day here. So, um, all right. So we'll come back next week. Um, we'll return and we'll continue our quick review. I was gonna, I was gonna shoot for the, um, for where the dwarves are, but I think I'm gonna give up because we're pretty far from there still, and it's getting really late. I don't want to keep people. Yeah. Like, and they're on the other side of the barrier. Yeah, they yeah. are on the other side of the barrier, so we might as well step over ahead. Um, we will go. So, what, what server are we on next time? Um, Gladden, I believe. Is Gladden next week? Yes, Gladden. Okay. So then, let's plan to. Um, uh, we'll plan to go across the boundary next week, so folks on Gladden can make sure if they need to quest up to get across the boundary in the middle. We'll have a little time to do that. Um, cool. All right. We'll let everybody go. Thanks for joining me on our uh, little rapid journey of rediscovery here in Angmar. Uh, we will return next week and continue rediscovering and maybe get to the point of discovering for the first time. Um, uh, again, though, I don't know. We still have a lot to rediscover. Um, but we'll, we will resume Angmar next time and, of course, return to the Council of Elrond again. Um, but Thanks for joining me, everybody, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. (laughs) Bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. 
If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.